With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, to say that I'm excited and honored to bring you my next guest is a horrible understatement. He spent four years on active duty as an infantryman Marine as well as maintaining the 0317 Marine Sniper designation. He's a Medal of Honor recipient. He is the owner of Own the Dash Apparel, Flipside Canvas, and himself. He's a patriot, a father, a motivator, and an entrepreneur. His beard makes fruit mold jealous, but that doesn't keep him from breaking the switch and owning the dash. Please welcome to the stage, Dakota Meyer. <laughs> oh, you man. Know, you know I gotta fuck with you on that your beard. Is every, the best, every, that is the best intro I've ever had in my life. Well, fucking A. I, uh, I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, uh, to me, that's one of my uh, signature things is to try to have a good intro because, you know, it's like the, uh, it's the first impression, right? Yeah, yeah. Got to break the ice and, uh, you know, get right into to making people laugh and, and be entertaining and interesting. Uh, how the fuck are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm I, appreci- good. I appreciate you coming up here. I know it's a, a long jaunt and these in-person ones can be uh, a pain logistically. We'll get into why this is a, a reschedule here in a minute. Man, I appreciate you having me. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Yeah, no, me too. And we get so many fucking people asking to have you on here every time we put a post out that uh, says, you know, who who do you want to have on? Your name comes up a million fucking times. Probably because they know that my life's a train wreck and there's a lot of interesting (laughs) shit about it. It's like like a fucking revolving reality TV show, right? (laughs) Well. In in more ways than one. In more ways than one. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, before we get in the meat and potatoes, I want to officially announce, uh, I am proud to be able to announce that uh, Origin Labs is our first podcast sponsor, major sponsor of the podcast. And uh, I want to take a second to thank them. They make all the Jocko stuff as well as uh, a number of uh, different supplements of their own. They make badass uh, jujitsu geese, uh, a lot of really good products. But most importantly, is that they've they've given us what you know we've kind of maintained as our standard here of of authenticity and and just really being you know the podcast that everybody has grown to know and love, which is uh, mic drop style, uh, raw format, no filters, uh, and there's no restrictions. You know they're they're on board with letting us run shit the way we want, and that's the only kind of relationship we'll have with uh, with advertisers. So big shout out to Origin Labs. We're uh, christening it with some Jocko tea. We're gonna do a quick cheers. I like it. 
And uh, the Jocko White. They're the best. Yeah, fucking A. Cheers. We'll give, give a quick chug. Big shout out to all the guys at Origin, and I uh, want to say thanks. All right, so as you uh, know from listening to some of the episodes, I like to jump right into a lightning round. What's your favorite episode of Teen Mom? <laughs> oh, the uh, uh, be, being Dakota. It's the only one that I approve of. Is that right? Yeah. What uh, does, is that? The only one that doesn't make you look like a an asshole dad slash husband. <laughs> yeah. I, I know they're slanted as fuck on that show. No, not at all. It's all real. Yeah, real. Yeah. No, it's all, <laughs> all totally legit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was the weirdest thing uh, about having Sarah Palin as your in law when you did? <laughs> Oh yeah, we're taking them all from the top rope. I um, there's probably too many to list. Too many. I mean, what is she like in person? Is she is she fucking the way that she's portrayed in the media and on on that disaster of a fucking reality show that she was on for it's a pretty, couple minutes? Yeah, uh, it's pretty accurate. She's kind of a train wreck. You know, you can um, say it. You know, she, you know, she, uh, she, she's got a good heart. <laughs> That's like saying somebody's a good neighbor. She's got a good heart. I love it. We don't, me and Sarah don't see eye to eye at all. Like, me and Sarah don't get along at any level. Yeah, there's nothing you guys are on the same sheet on? Absolutely not. Absolutely fucking no. That's, uh I'd say it's surprising. It's not. Is there, like, can you pick one thing that was just fucking weird? Um, no, I can't. Yeah. I can't. I wish I could, but Maybe. I just, like, the whole, I look at my whole, you know, last four years of my life, and it's been... Trying to trying to fucking remove it from the uh, memory bank. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, that's why. So a you talk. I mean, you talk about you talk about like trying to trying to bring up memory lane. Like this yeah. is shit I'm trying to get rid of. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm also a therapy coach. I'm a yeah. life coach. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, here's one that's a little more your neck of the woods. Uh, favorite both pistol and rifle. Like let's say apocalypse happens, you get to have one pistol and one rifle, and I want to know the the actual round that you're going to use for those. Also, like the actual brand of carry ammo uh h&k vp9 would be my go-to pistol what, uh, uh, what round do you like for that whichever one is available <laughs> oh you're not using ball ammo right I mean, you know what you like uh, you know i don't <clears throat> i don't give a fuck right yeah. i mean I, man i you know I, I i know you get into all that stuff but i, I don't like i don't i don't really give a fuck i promise you i'll keep shooting you until i kill you <laughs> um so that'd be my pistol. My rifle would probably be six five Creedmoor. Yeah, yeah. Is it? I mean, from from my understanding, I, I admittedly don't know a whole lot about the six five or the six eight, other than that it's hard as fuck to find the ammo when you do. You're gonna have to mortgage your fucking house to buy it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is it from a a a less drop standpoint? Is that is that the? Yeah, I think the trajectory on it's a lot better than a three hundred eight. Just flatter for longer. Yeah, you know, and I, could, I feel like that I could use it to, to clear houses as well as, you know, I could, you know, if I had a, uh, if I had a gas gun, 6.5 Creedmoor in a gas yeah. gun, you know, not a bolt gun, I could use it for long range if I needed to, and I could use it to clear a house if I wanted to. Yeah. Amen. Um, what is the biggest challenge with having received uh, the Medal of Honor? I know, you know, you talk a lot about, you know some of the uh, the hard parts with it, and in, in terms of the emotions behind it. Uh, obviously, there's some things that are, are benefits to it. You know whether anybody wants to fucking admit that or not. But you know, for me, I'm curious. You know, day to day, is is there is there something that sticks out that's challenging about about carrying that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like everybody around you, like they have this expectation of you, like you would, you, this is how you should be. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not a Medal of Honor recipient. Like I'm just a, I'm just an average guy who got put in a above average situation and who did what any, any average human being would do, presented that opportunity. So it's like they, they, they put this unrealistic expectation on you to, you have to live a certain way and it's like i'm no different than you are so why do i have to live any different than you do well i mean to to me i i can understand the the perspective on that the one there's a couple things i would say and that you know i respectfully disagree in terms of like the genetics behind being just like everybody else i mean the reality of it is is that most people don't have that component to them if they did the human species wouldn't survive uh because it you know that disregard and and reckless abandon uh you know for your own self-preservation does not lend itself to a species maintaining itself you know so that that's why most people don't i think it's in everybody i mean i think like i I, I disagree i mean i mean i yeah i mean you see it all the fucking time i mean most people don't have that i mean it's the same thing but i think it's not but i think that's a i think it's i don't think it's a it's not a nature thing i think it's a nurture thing really i do i don't think it's a i don't think it's a I don't think it's a. I mean, look, I'm the. You do you remember Jared Lorenzen? Yeah, I'm the Jared Lorenzen of <laughs> of getting a medal of honor, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's either in you, like it's 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 nurture, not nature. Like it's a. I don't. I well, don't. So I, I guess so. What what do you think about the the nurture process or the environment that? that uh, you had continuously been into that, that uh, you know, propelled you to do that then? Uh, you know, my, my father and everybody around me growing up was always about everybody else. They were always, you know, I look at, they're always all about trying to take care of others, right? Putting others first. Of, not this selfish, this, this and, and I think that people who are selfish are weak, right? They're weak mm-hmm. because they have to be so focused on themselves mm-hmm. to make sure that they're protected. And, and I think that, you know, with being with my, you know, growing up with my father and, you know, my dad didn't give a shit what anybody thought about him. My dad didn't care whose clique he was in. He didn't care what you thought of his last name. My dad woke up every day to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes doing the right thing with people around you. And I think that like that instilled in me over and over and over and over is what has made me into the person I am today. You know, looking at my, my dad worked hard. My dad, you know, my dad's not rich. I mean, you know, my dad wakes up every day and he busts his ass every single day. And, and, you know, and, and I think growing up on a farm of having to take care of like, I mean, I used to have to go feed, feed the cows before I got to eat. Right. I mean, like putting, taking care of animals. I mean, you, you know about taking care of a dog, right? I mean, like putting others before yourself of seeing that nurture of that, you know, of, of caring, I think that's something that's a, that's a lot to do with why you do what you do. I I would agree. I think it's a lot to do with it. My take just, you know, from the genetic component of dealing with dogs so much is that it's both. Yeah. The reason I say it's both is because there are, there are exemplary specific examples of people who have been put in similar situations as you that rose to that, that did not have that type of upbringing. You know, yeah. so to me, that's not going to exist unless it's just hardwired. And and with dogs, you know, to me, it's it's really both. Is that the the most important component is genetically, it has to be there, because you're you're going to be either limited to or able to rise to uh, the level of your genetic capability, irrespective of of what the training is. 
that that cap, you know, that that uh, meter peg, if you will, genetically is always going to be the limit. You know, no, whether it's you're trying to be a fucking NBA superstar or the best fucking shot in the world or you know, CrossFit Games champion, pick whatever fucking discipline is that you cannot accomplish that just through hard work and training if you don't have the fucking genetics. And so I think in cases like this, that com- that genetic component has to be there. If it is there, you know, being in the environment that you grew up in, you know, having the tutelage and mentorship that you had in the Marine Corps with, uh, you know, the different examples of, of great men that, uh, you know, imposed their way of life and, and setting that moral example as to how to be, uh, you know, a, a good United States Marine, um, you know, were huge proponents to, to be able to, uh, you know, give you that genetic perfect uh, storm, if you will, of, of being able to Yeah, do I mean, I agree in a lot of situations, right? But in my situation... I honestly think you could take the average guy off the side of the road and do it. I mean, I didn't do anything. Literally, the only difference in me and everybody else is the decision I made. Well, right. Like, I didn't Like I didn't do anything like, yeah, I mean, look, could I ever play in the NBA? Obviously not. Like, you know what I mean? I don't have those genetics. And I think there's a lot of stories to where 100%. I just think in my situation, man, like, dude, I was never the fastest. I was never, yeah. I was never the smartest. I was never the best at anything. I was just a guy who just didn't quit. No, agreed. But does I, that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent it does. You know, having been a SEAL instructor and, and, and again, looking through thousands of dogs over the last better part of 20 years, you know, again, from my perspective is that, you know, genetics play a huge role, yeah. you know, to your point, you know, there was a number of, of, uh, individuals that sat in the fucking truck, right? So the decision that you made, granted, you made it, but the decision that they made to stay in that fucking truck, they made that also. What what made them make that decision? In my opinion, genetics. Yeah, but, and the question I always have, you know, I always look back is, if it happened to me again today, would I make the same decision? I'm sure you would. Well, but you, but you know, but I always question that. Like, yeah. I don't really, I'm not gonna say I question it, but like, I always wonder, like, yeah, would what, what, would something changed it? Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I hear you. I mean, I guess. Back to the original question, I, I can see how most people probably expect you to be yeah. the way you were that day every fucking day of your life. And that's like a, people try to fight you. Like, I mean, they're, yeah, they're trying to, dude, I, I'm no, not, I like, I'm not a, like, I, I don't fight MMA. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. people, well, let's go to the range and shoot. Like, I yeah. mean, it's, everything's like a competition. When, I feel like when they get around me and it's like, dude, I'm like, I'm fat and out of shape. Like. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, didn't, I, didn't I do enough to prove uh, myself? Can we just fucking have a beer and hang out? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm tracking. Um, this this one is from my oldest daughter. She wanted me to ask you, what is your least favorite flavor of ice cream? Probably like just straight chocolate. Is that right? Yeah. That's racist. I don't know if you knew that or not. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it is. It's I don't racist. like white chocolate either, though. So it's white privilege. Though, oh, sure. we're, we're going to hit all the topics on this one. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, moving right along. <laughs> Uh, this, you're going to like this one just as much. Uh, have you run into Dan Blazerian since the, uh, the lover's quarrel that you guys had back uh, a couple of years ago? I haven't, but gosh, Dan, if you're listening to this, man, I would give anything to meet you somewhere. I'd give mm-hmm. anything. Give me five minutes with you. So that, that hasn't been put to bed. You're still, it still hasn't. pretty heated. Yeah, I'm still pretty hot about it. Yeah. Uh, Dan, you, uh, you know how to get a hold of us, buddy. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dan, I, I ask everybody this, uh, what is your morning routine? And this is outside the realm of, of travel, just normal day you're at the house. What, uh, what's that morning routine look at, look like? Oh, well, it depends. I got my kids 50, 50, right? So if I don't have my girls, I, I try to get up in the morning. You know, the first thing I do is make my bed. 
Um, He's either Admiral McRaven. Yep, right. So I get out, make my bag. <laughs> I want to. I want to at least get something done that day. And then um, I usually go in, try to you know shoot some emails off for at least thirty minutes, and then I try to get a workout in. So you go essentially right into fucking checking your phone and, and doing that. There's not you don't eat anything. You don't meditate or any of that kind of shit. Go I usually ahead. won't eat until probably nine ten o'clock. Are you a, a coffee guy? No, I don't drink coffee. No shit. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the types of workouts, I, I at least from you know following you on social media and, and keeping some some sort of track. I mean, I know you, you've got a, a pretty good crew of fucking physical pipe hitters down there that, yeah. that you seem to work out with fairly regularly. What uh, what what is that like? I guess, and and how often are you going to you know the gym? Say where Tim is at, or or uh, you know any of the guys like that. You really know, it usually depends on my travel schedule. I, I honestly haven't been in. I I was going to on it at least three or four times a week, working out with Tim and and training. But you know, like the travel schedule is what kills you. Yeah. You know, I I try to get in there and I try to work out three or four days a week. Right. Uh, the best, you know. Um, you know, usually we do everything from training at on it to training at Atomic to doing, you know, rolling jujitsu to, you know, I just, I, um, I'm starting to, I'm going to start working out with Nick Bear. Oh, no, sure. Um, dude's an incredible guy. I'm sure you've heard of him, yeah. right? Um, really, really good dude. So, you know, I just, I, you know, we try to work out with just everybody. Yeah. Do you find that, uh, working out in terms of, you know, dealing with your past and, and, uh, just maintaining that, that mental level of balance, does that play a big role for you? Uh, or, or do you put anything emotionally into the workouts that, uh, that helps with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I have really bad anxiety, so I'm working out. Usually I, usually I can look like when I start feeling like shit all the time, I can usually look in the mirror and see why. Yeah. Just because you haven't been getting after it, yeah, yeah. No, I know it. I mean, it, it obviously plays a huge mental role. Um, I mean, it's kind of like, like I mean, look, it's it's kind of like you know, you you told me this back four years ago. I mean, it's kind of like you know, with 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 your dogs, right? I mean, you know, you take them out even if you don't work them that day. I mean, you got to get them out and they got to run, like right. Yeah. You got to if you and if you don't leave them built up for three days in the house, yeah. Watch what happens. Yeah, no, it's you a know? fucking goddamn train wreck in there. Yeah, there's no, there's yeah, a, yeah. yeah. No, I know it. It's uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's all about balance. Um, in terms of the way you said you don't eat till nine or ten, do you prescribe to a specific uh, eating routine or style? Not, I mean, I, I eat gas station food more than anything. <laughs> Fucking burritos and gas. Yeah. Do you do gas station sushi? Is that what you're doing? No, no. I stay away from that. Yeah. But like, I can. I'm pretty much like a gas station connoisseur. <laughs> I can tell you what's a, what's a good gas station. And what's going to have Bucky's. good food? What's not? I, I mean, obviously, I mean, Bucky's. Bucky's is kind of like the. It's uh, not even a gas station. No, that's not like that's like filet mignon yeah. at the gas station. The Benihana of gas yeah, station. Yeah, I mean, you can't. Bucky's doesn't count. Bucky's is fucking ridiculous, is what it is. But we talked about that this morning on the yeah. way up here. I stopped at Bucky's on the way here. Fucking I mean, Bucky's is like an like a, a it's like an adventure. Yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, I mean there's really nothing else like it. I mean it's uh, you, I mean it's kind of like Costco, I guess though, and that you can't go in there and, and like three hundred dollars later in an hour, like, oh. like fuck, I stopped for gas, yeah, and to piss, and I'm three hundred bucks light in my wallet, and uh, and I've been here for a fucking. Have you hour. ever seen a Bucky's that wasn't busy? No, it's all, I mean I don't give a fuck what time you go either. It'd be three in the morning. There's and, fucking two hundred people, and they have more. They have more uh, gas pumps than yeah. anything else. Yeah. Have you, I, I no, mean, usually you're looking where you can get in there. Yeah, yeah I know it. No, the place is fucking absurd. I, uh, unfortunately, they're not public, and they don't have any plans to go public. That is a company I would fucking invest in. Yeah, 100%. 100%. 
Do you have a favorite uh, gas station food? Um, What's the go-to for Dakota? The go-to for me, I like, I mean, if we're going to talk Bucky's, if Bucky's counts in the gas stations, I would go for the uh, the brisket sandwich. Yeah. I Slice mean, brisket, though. To me, I got, I got to disqualify that. I mean, like, let's say you go into a fucking 7-Eleven or a quick trip or a fucking come and go. Yeah, I mean, you look, you know, the go-to, you can always, at, at 99% of gas stations, you can go in and you can always find sweet and hot beef jerky, Yeah. right? So, like, that is, like, a, 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 a sure thing. That's kind of like a reserve inside your, your you know, in your, in your, in your uh, parachute. Yeah. But if you can go in and you can really get it, either either pizza, usually pizza's really good, yeah. um, or you can get into the... You know, if you, you got to be really careful with the chicken strips because uh, sometimes they're overcooked and they've been there a day. Yeah, they've been there for really be careful. nine hours. Uh, but yeah, usually that, or, or I'll tell you what else, if they got them. fucking hot dogs? Well, I don't. You don't fuck with the hot dogs? I don't like the shape. <laughs> you don't have to lie to make friends. <laughs> you don't have to pretend that you don't like the I shape. I bet you do like hot dogs, don't you? <laughs> I bet you get two at a time, oh, way don't to go, you, Mike. Break? I bet you do. <laughs> maybe, I bet you play Chubby Bunny with hot dogs, maybe, don't you? Maybe I play hide the monster and get two at a time. <laughs> yeah, fuck, I, don't I bet. Know. Oh, Christ. Yeah, he pulls one out driving yeah. down the road. Where'd you keep that at, Mike? Yeah. Huh? Uh, that's our secret. <laughs> yeah. Show me where it hurts. Uh Fucking Jesus Christ, we're getting off track. All right, so uh, moving right along. In your book, you talk uh, at length about, and you've already referenced it now, the uh, the childhood. And, and to me, there was a couple thoughts I had, but I'd love for you to kind of uh, expound on them, is that growing up on that childhood farm in, in Columbia, and is, is Columbia where, where I met you first? It is, yeah. You, yeah okay. So, I mean, the farm where you met me is actually where I grew up. Okay. So you talk about essentially having three father figures, none of which were your biological father. Can you speak to, to that that childhood and kind of synopsize what that was like? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I, I kind of look back and, and I was so fortunate to be surrounded by, you know, incredible uh, people just just to always hold me accountable, right? Not to tell me what, you know, to, to set the example. And, uh, you know, I also talked about in, in the part, front part of my book, you know, I learned at an early age in life that just because your blood doesn't mean your family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's what, you know, what, what that means. You know, you take coaches were always a huge role in my life. I mean, you know, everybody from Coach Griffiths to, you know, uh, Coach Robbins. And, you know, you go down the list of uh, Coach Hodges. I mean, they just... You know, they always they always were a huge role in my life of authority figures. You know, I wouldn't listen to teachers, mm-hmm. but I tell you what, if they said something, I did it, and I would. You know, I didn't want to let them down. And I, the people I always named were the people I never wanted to let down. You know, and you and you take, I mean, just to just to give you a reference, you know, you take my dad. I mean, it's hard enough. I mean, as you know, you got kids. It's it's hard enough to wake up every day and be a damn good dad to yeah, well, it's to, to, to your own kids, right? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, my dad chose. You know, he, he adopted me at, at a young age and chose to take some other man's responsibility yeah. and raise me as a father. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that right there, it, it's just a, a correlation of the type of like environment that I was raised yeah. in. When he uh, he didn't date your mom for very long either, no. right? So I mean, he. Rogered up for that responsibility and and then sustained it after the divorce. Yeah, right. Like yeah. I mean, you talk about that sustained it, paid child support, and for the first ten years of my life, paid child support for a child that wasn't his. Yeah, and then still came and got me every other weekend and on Wednesdays. 
Do you have any relationship with your real dad? I, you know, he. Tr- I don't know who he is. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, he tr- a guy tried to come out a few years ago, and ba- his wife approached me. It was like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this happened here. This guy did this or whatever. And I was like, I just wrote him back, and I said, you know, uh, we'd like to do a DNA, t- DNA test. And I just wrote him back, and I said, look, I said, I don't need a DNA test. I know who my father is. Yeah. You know, I mean, it. it what does it really matter, right? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's kind of like you know, those genealogy shit, right? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? To a certain extent, who gives a fuck? Who gives know? a fuck? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I wouldn't do it just for the, from a privacy standpoint. Like, you know, I'm not sending my fucking DNA to, I don't know who. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I think that's a really good point, though, is, is you know, looking at it like your life was what it was because of the of the men that, that played the role that they did, and and that's all that really matters. And yeah. I think uh, I think that's important. And hats off to to Big Mike, right? Yeah, I Big mean, Mike, fucking Christ, incredible! I'm telling you, that well, guy with a name is like incredible. that, it's hard to it's hard <laughs> to argue. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, as you uh, you grew up, um, you know, working hard is one of the stories you mentioned in the book. It's talking about spearing tobacco plants without any fucking protective gear on to the point where you actually get uh, nicotine poisoning, mm-hmm. basically. And it, it sounds like it kind of almost shut your fucking liver and kidneys down like you couldn't piss. Do, do you think that uh, there was any predisposition because of that that led to maybe getting rhabdo no, easier no, here what, recently? What it what happened was, is like when you get nicotine poisoning, it's kind of like alcohol poisoning, right? Like you just start throwing up. And uh, basically, you dehydrate yourself. So we would get that every year. I mean, basically, you know, when we're out there in no shirt, shorts, and cutting tobacco because it's a hundred and some degrees, right? Yeah. Um, you're soaking up that nicotine through your skin. You're sweating. Your pores are open, and it's just an overdose of nicotine. Yeah. And you just start throwing up. Your body's trying to get rid of it. And so we would get it every year. Um, and that's why, like, I can't. I I could dip and smoke when I was deployed. But right now, if I put a dip in, I yeah. forget it. Right, like <laughs> I, if, I if, I smell it, spinning and if I smell it, if I smell it, I'm spinning. Oh, um, but no, you know this rhabdo thing. It, it actually, I, I'm pretty sure it came from Bang Energy drinks. No shit. Yeah. Shout out to Bang. Yeah. Shout out to Bang. Right. <laughs> like um, Bang Energy drinks. Yeah. Put me in the hospital for a week. No shit. Six what days. The, and so that you know, for the listener, we we had scheduled this last week. Uh, and he was in the fucking hospital with uh, with rhabdomyosis, which is uh, most people know of it. Uh, a lot, a lot of times you hear of it in CrossFit. Um, I've seen people, you know, get it from doing too hard of workouts too too often, or, or pushing themselves physically too hard for too long, and and it essentially shuts your body down, your liver, and, and they're you know you're pissing fucking coke if if at all. Um, but you know, back to the uh, well. First of all, obviously they they released you. You're right. Any any after effects? Good to go now. Ready to you go. You want a bang energy drink? No, I'll never have, I'll never put a bang in me again. Yeah. If you drink bang, that, that get rid of them. Wrong. Don't ever drink another bang. Yeah, I'll never put a bang in me ever yeah, again. Yeah, I bet you. All right, I, I bet we can get your mind right on that. <laughs> um, the uh, so back to the tobacco stuff though. Um, that that was a big part of you growing up was you know harvesting and spearing tobacco plants, which is physically exhausting fucking work. I'm assuming that that's another component to uh, teaching you good work ethic and, and being a big part of your upbringing. And you talk about some of the uh, the other workers that were there and, and being impressed by their work ethic. Is that something that that you feel like has has stuck with you to to today? Yeah, I mean you know I mean we had to I mean I had to work for everything I had growing up. You know yeah. my it's just me and my dad. 
and um you know we had a farm and we had a lot of stuff to get done and you know i was telling we were actually talking about on the drive up here you know i i i didn't know that there were options right my dad woke up and it wasn't like a negotiation it wasn't like a hey i'm i'll do this like my dad didn't bribe me like my dad wasn't like oh hey if you do what you're supposed to do i'll give you this right like it was never that it was just expected mm -hmm. and uh you know my my dad would get up and i mean he'd get up and be like hey i left you a list on the table um i want it done by the time i come home that's it yeah that's it you know like if you didn't do it are you getting your ass kicked I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. You know, my dad, my dad really, he never really put his hands on me. I mean, my dad just, it was like, <clears throat> you knew damn well the expectations and you knew that like, if you don't do this, well, you're either going to have three times as much on you tomorrow yeah, or you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. Like you knew, like, and my dad would always, you know, like I'll never forget, he, he gave me a cell phone. He's like, Hey, here. And, um, here's 250 text messages. This cell phone is for me to communicate with you. That's what it's for. Right. Yeah. Um, you go over those text messages like you're grounded 30 days or grades or whatever. Yeah. And I knew for a fact that if my dad said it, it wasn't going to be let off at 29. Yeah. It wasn't going to be, oh, well, your friend wants you to come over and you're going to miss this opportunity. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'll never forget. I knew every year at the end of the year when my final report card came in, I, I it was season above. My dad, my dad had a low expectations for me. He knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I need you to get at least a 2.0, yeah, son. Exactly. You know what I mean? I mean, he knew I wasn't very smart, so he, at least he was fair about it. Uh, but if I got a D, I was grounded the whole summer. Yeah. And I knew my dad meant that. Like, when my dad said something, he meant it. Yeah. Did you ever send him an accidental dick pic on the text messages? No. <laughs> no, that was back before, like, they had before those. Before they had cameras. Yeah. Shit. Well, they had cameras, but, like, you'd have to get on your computer and pull it up and stuff. Yeah. There's a little bit of a generation gap there because uh, they sure as fuck didn't have cell phones when I was in high school. But uh, or, I mean, they had. Them, I might like, send the, you one tomorrow. You mean a, another one? Another one, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, you talk a lot about hunting, um, and that's something. Admittedly, like I, I did very little of. I didn't shoot a lot growing up. Um, you know, my dad took uh, me and my two older brothers shooting a, a few times, but uh, didn't do a whole lot of it. You did quite a bit of it, from the sounds of it. And you talk about that kind of preparing you for some of the instances in combat. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I was eight when I killed my first deer. Um, you know, I, I can remember it vividly right now. I mean, you know, and it's it's not something, you know, if, obviously I look at it different now than I did back then. But, you know, taking an animal's life, taking anything that lives life is, is a, like it's a serious deal. Yeah. You know, but I grew up doing it. I mean, I grew up hunting on my own you know what i mean like going out i mean it was just a part of life right go you know you didn't shoot anything that you weren't going to eat right um i mean i was around guns they were just around right yeah. i mean you know we grew up on a farm and you know you you're always out hunting squirrels and when it's not squirrels it's rabbits if it's not rabbits it's you know you go shoot turtles out of the pond because they bite the, the cows right i mean it's it's 
it's just a way of life. Did did, uh, did your dad was your dad the biggest influence in terms of teaching you to shoot at that age? Yeah. Here, I'm curious. Like looking back on it now, having had a significant amount of formal military training, both sniper and infantryman wise, contrasting it to what he taught you, paralleled or is it very different? Like was he a, a really good shot and and taught you good habits, or were, were there things where you're like, "Fuck, I wish he wouldn't have shown me this," or, or did you did you find that you had some bad habits? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, like we don't like you know growing up on a farm. It's not like you've got like a tactical you know tactical scope and you know yeah. i mean it's not like you've got you know you well let me get these rings because you know they're going to make sure that the scope's not off i mean yeah. it's like you pull the, like you pull your deer rifle out and you go shoot it two or three times before you go deer hunting the next morning and the thing's sitting up all year long you don't know anything about holds you don't know anything about you know what i mean you don't you don't know anything like it's just a you know uh, i mean usually we were shooting open sights i mean i, yeah. I, I usually hunt the most with a 30 30 open sights yeah no 30 30 is one of my favorite favorite fucking guns i, I love it lever action stuff to beat i'm curious like from a technique standpoint though i mean even just the basic fundamentals and marksmanship was uh you know or, or were there consistencies between what he taught you and what you learned in the in the marine corps i mean shooting 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 right like you know it so do I think there's a correlation? I mean, I think he gave me the basics 100%. I think he gave me the basics of of how to use those weapon systems the best that he knew. You yeah. know what I mean? But do I look back and I'm like, yeah, that that th- this makes a lot of sense of why I was shooting them. <laughs> you know, yeah. why I was why I was you know, why I wounded more yeah. deer than I killed. <laughs> yeah. So it definitely refined you in the Marine Corps to uh, learn the the legitimate fucking fundamentals. It's, but a lot of it probably had to do that. I didn't really listen to him. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was some of the best shots I've ever fucking met and been around were guys that grew up, you know, being taught by, by their dads and, and, uh, or grandfathers, some of which had no, uh, you know, formal trainer or whatever. I mean, there's, there are a lot of guys running around this country that are incredibly fucking capable and lethal that have never, you know, served or, or done anything but run around the woods fucking hunting. But I was not that great of a shot. I mean, I'll be honest. Like, yeah. even in, I mean, I was a sniper, but I wasn't, I don't think that I ever got uh, really good at shooting until probably a year after becoming a sniper. Like, yeah. you know, when it started clicking, I started taking it serious. I started taking, I got more serious about it, right? Like, yeah. in sniper school, I just kind of got through it. Like, yeah. hey, I just need to get through this. I mean, it was like not even a huge percentage in sniper school. The other part of it was knowledge and stalking and, you know, patrol. Like, I just I just got through it. You yeah. know what I mean? And then I think after I got in the platoon and I started really taking things serious, that was when I became a, a, a better shooter. Yeah. Was a lot of it on-the-job training? Because, I mean, you had a fair bit of engagements and, and real – real trigger time uh you know in real world combat leading up to you know prior to the uh the into the fire account uh you know in Gonjigal. but was that uh, a big part of the learning process yeah i mean look it like i mean i'm sure i mean i'm sure you know this like shooting on a target and shooting ranges very different it's it's not even close to the same thing of of getting your ass shot at mm-hmm. and then engaging a human being i mean it's a significant act to take another human's life yeah um at the same time being in the same act of someone taking your life mm-hmm. you know and and of wanting to take your life yeah and then 
add on. I mean, so you talk about like you can't correlate. Like I, I'll never forget. I used to think that like, and I, I mean, I, I did a ton of stress drills, right? Uh, as far as stress shooting. But I always thought it was dumb. You know what I mean? I always thought it was dumb. Like, well, this isn't going to be like how it is in real life. Yeah. It's a fucking million times worse. I don't think I've ever took shots that, that my, you know, that, that I wasn't maxed out. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, no. Well, the other thing, I mean, with the, the two-way range aspect of it, I know for me, I mean, that, that changed my entire life, frankly. It was, you know, the, the very first time you ever really get shot at where it's real fucking close. You know, yeah. you know it's intended for you and, and it almost hit you. For me, uh, I'm assuming it's the same way for most people. I know everybody's a little different, but for me, that changed my perspective on life across the fucking board, you know, uh, at the flip of a fucking switch. But, um, you know, and, and every time... Uh, it makes it real. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember the very first time we ever as a platoon took a guy's life and afterwards, uh, you know, we're there right, right by his body. And I remember for me, I mean, I was 22 or three at the time. Um, you know, I, I remember taking a knee and being right next to him, looking down and seeing this, you know, lifeless slumped fucking body and thinking like it, it just, it was like a slap in the face, you know, of saying that could have just as easily been me and them, you know, taking a knee around my fucking body, figuring out what, you know, who hit them and, and where it, what kind of damage, you know, almost doing like a little mini BDA of, of seeing what, what you did. And, and for me, you know, that those two experiences, at least for me in combat were, were absolutely fucking, uh, enormously life-changing. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes this, you know, I mean, cause we train for everything, right? I mean, you know, I, I know that before we went over, we did this one range that, I mean, they actually had, they had pyro guys from Hollywood there, you mm -hmm. know, giving a simulation of just, it was basically a mass casualty and, and I, you know, there was a lot to it, right? I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, they had guys there with no legs, like really guys with no legs that, you know, it, it was probably the most it was uh, it was probably the most realistic training I ever had. It was at Twenty Nine Palms, yeah. And I'll never forget that. Like after I left there, like I was so overwhelmed with trying to triage. I mean, you had guys wounded everywhere. You're trying to take the enemy down. They're still moving on you. And I'll never forget leaving there. I was like, "Fuck, this will never happen." Yeah. Like I'm glad we did that. This will never happen though. Yeah. And September eighth made that like it was a cakewalk. Yeah. No, I know it. I mean, you know, the, the realism of training has come so far in the last couple of decades, but agreed, you know, to me there, there's, and it's similar, there's so many parallels between, you know, trying to prepare dogs for combative situations, whether it's military police, whatever, um, and, and going through as a soldier and, and, no matter how realistic any training ever is, you know, no matter how many resources you have, the training areas, the fucking, you know, how complex the the actual scenario itself is, there is always an element in the back of your mind that understands it's still training, that there's some sort of safety net there, and and that your life is not on the line the same way that it is when somebody's legitimately trying to fucking take it. And, uh, you know, hats off to, you know, to all the cod training cadre that, that do their yeah. best, but, but nothing. Well, I know. mean, you know that, I mean, you know, it. and then the other factor of it is, is like, <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, I don't know about you. I'll speak for myself cause I try to speak for other people and, and just, you know, categorize everybody like this. But I mean, there, there is a factor of, of taking another human being's life. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a factor of, 
of knowing that that you're you're about to end this person's life. I mean, it's not like you're beating their ass. Yeah. I mean, you're about to change the course of history for the a family. The course of history for a family. Yeah. And whether, you know, I've always said whether you know, whether you think you're right or they think they're right, uh, n- nobody over there thinks they're wrong. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're right. Yeah, no, it's it's a tough tough spot to be in and one that, uh, you know, you can try to explain it to, to people that haven't been there as best you can, but uh, it, it just isn't the same as, as going through it. Leading up to joining the Marines, it, it seems like, you know, the the takeaway I took from reading is essentially your ego got you into the Marines, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, uh, yeah. if, you, if you can tell a quick story of uh, being in the cafeteria <clears throat> with the recruiter, it, that's yeah. fucking hilarious. Yeah, you know, I went to the cafeteria and... Um, the recruiter was in there, and I started asking a lot of smart like, questions, right? I mean, I thought I was – I mean, I wasn't that good at football, but I thought I could go walk on somewhere. I was good enough to walk on somewhere, yeah. uh, probably a D2 school. And I just started asking a lot of smart like, questions, and he's like, what are you going to do when you graduate high school? And I puffed my chest up, and I'm like, well, I'm going to go play I'm football gonna somewhere. I'm going to whoop your ass. Yeah, I'm going to play football somewhere. And um, – He's like, well, that's what I do too, because you know you never make it as a marine. <laughs> and you know, I, I, you know, I was hard headed. I mean, I yeah. still am, but I'm yeah. still. Me and my daughters are both still working on the no word, uh, <laughs> taking no very easily. So, I, I, you know, I left and I uh, went back, and it just it pissed me off. Like yeah. I went, like, okay, this dude told me I couldn't do what he does, really. Yeah. yeah. And so I went back, and I was like, hey, I'll get my transcript. Let's go do this. And so I went and signed up that day. That were two things. What, what was the, the knee injury that you sustained in football? Yeah, so I, got, I took a hit to the knee and I stretched. Uh, so first hit I had to, or first time I, I messed it up, was between my sophomore and junior year. I had actually fell down this hill, hit a rock, and it nicked my patella tendon, and uh, they had to sew it all up. So that was one problem. And then turned around, I stretched my MCL, and so I had to go in and get scar tissue taken out. And so, you know, that those were the two. I've had two knee sur- or one or two knee surgeries. Yeah. Um, so obviously that uh, prevented, you know, the path going into, into play higher level college ball. 100%. Did you look at any other services uh, or was it just the dude said that and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to be a Marine then? Yeah, it was just the Marines. Like, I, you know, I mean, I've always seen, like, you know, the, the Army guys that showed up, the National Guard had showed up at their school all the time. They were there the most. Yeah. But I just, I don't know. I didn't feel, I, you know, I tell you this, I, I wasn't challenged by them. Yeah. And that's what got me to do it. It was that challenge from that Marine. Yeah. That's, uh, it's funny how, I'm sure how calculated and, and uh, how many times I'm sure that that tactic has worked with guys in your shoes. But yeah. uh, not that I'm immune from shit like that, let's be honest. Um so you you go home your your dad and grandpa are kind of mixed emotions is, is that a safe assumption? you know my grandfather was a marine i think my dad just didn't want me to make a hasty decision and so uh yeah <laughs> right um uh, but <laughs> based, you know, based on your ego based on my ego yeah, yeah. so and he knew how hard-headed i was and, yeah. and uh but you know he signed the papers for me yeah if you could uh synopsize the uh the boot camp infantry uh experience uh for those that are maybe less less familiar uh obviously without chronologically outlining the entire fucking experience but yeah i mean give give a sense for marine boot camp because obviously it's portrayed a lot in movies and 
and whatever. And there, there is an element of that that, you know, because I'll tell you, the fucking Navy boot camp is a joke. Yeah. I, I got in worse shape. You know, I, I showed up in better shape than, than when I left there. No, uh, Marine but, boot camp, I mean, you know, they, they know what they're doing. Like, they got it right. There's a reason they do it the way they do it. At the time, I'll say this, at the time, it was the hardest thing I'd ever gone through. Mm-hmm. Now, after looking back, it was the easiest part of my Marine Corps yeah. training. I mean, it was just a lot of physical, a lot of just, you know, I think it was what, you know, it, it, it taught you how to, I'm not going to say find that switch, but it taught you to find that switch of aggression, right, yeah. of, 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 of that in you. And so I think it, that's what it did is it drove you down. It broke you down. They're so smart about it because what they do is, is they spend the first third of it breaking you down, beating the shit out of you, right? Like just showing you that you're nothing by yourself. They spend the next third of it teaching you the history of the guys that went before you, learning about Marine Corps history, why you have the blood stripes down the leg of the, uh, you know, why your uniform's the way it is, of who, you know, the the legends are that have gone before you, the battles of Bellawood, like all down the list. They teach you the history of, of what being a Marine is and who that is and the standard that you have to live up to. And then the last third of it, they teach you how to live that standard. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a really methodical yeah. way of doing things. The, there's no no two ways about it. They have their shit wired tight. I mean, the one thing that I, I always marveled at with uh, you know Marines that we worked with, and and there was even a couple that uh, you know that were former Marines that uh, that came in into buds that uh, that I went through with. It kind of reminds me a lot of the state of Texas, honestly, in terms of the pride in yeah. the unit. That you know, like I've never met a more prideful fucking group of people than Texans. Same thing with Marines, but I, I always marveled at, at exactly what you're talking about in the in that second third of I mean, holy shit, those guys know the history, they know the fucking birthday, they know you know, like no other service really, you know, guys aren't aren't as anywhere near as knowledgeable, you know, collectively. And I have not met a single fucking Marine that didn't know all of that shit, you know, just like the fucking, like it was their own social security number. You know, to me, being a Marine, it's not, it ain't just a title, it's a way of life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, for all those pieces of it, and I I mean, I I go back, I'm like, I get more pissed off when people call me a Medal of Honor recipient. Like, no, I'm not a Medal of Honor recipient. I'm a rifleman, goddammit. I'm a United States Marine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I am. Yeah. The uh, as as much of the almost sibling rivalry and, and competitive nature between the SEAL teams and, and Marines, you know, off duty or peacetime or or just outside of actual bullets flying, there is is no motherfuckers I'd rather have with me, you know, and and, and they proved themselves with us a number of fucking times yeah. where you know I, I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for them. Granted, there was a couple times where I almost wasn't sitting here because of them, <laughs> but uh, but you know they. But you know what? We gave our effort yeah, at, at no all, matter of it, what. right? Yeah, fucking hey, you did. Whether it was trying to save me or trying to kill me. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. We're, yeah, I gave it everything you had. Yeah. No, they're yeah. I mean, you guys are are fucking amazing, amazing people to have around, and uh, and that's what like you know that's the shit. part for me like it makes me proud to be a marine. It's like you know we're not high speed. Like there's nothing high speed about us, right? But. You know, when you look at us, like we don't show up. I mean, you know, when, when people talk about Marines, like they talk about Marines. Yeah. Right? Like they don't talk about well, infantry, snipers, whatever yeah. else. They talk about Marines, right? Yeah. Like you're all the same. We're all the same. You know? And like that's what I always appreciate. You know, everybody always talks about, they always say exactly what you say. They've either tried to kill us or they've, you know, <laughs> or they've tried to save us. Yeah. But they always, 
I've never heard, especially SEALs, especially SEALs, say there's not a group that I'd rather have around me than that. I mean, Marcus Luttrell talks about it all the time. I mean, you you go down the list, like all the guys I know, they're like, you know what? Like when the Marines were around us, they would do their job. Yeah. No, we, you know, we were attached to the 1st Marine Division going, uh, you know, from Kuwait all the way up into Tikrit. And there's a couple of times we, we were just with the 15th Mew and, and, uh, but you know, we had LARs and LAVs, yeah. you know, almost at our disposal most of the time we were in Iraq. And yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, we were rolling around in four unarmored Humvees. Two of them didn't even have fucking doors on them. And uh, yeah, I mean, there was a number of times where, where those guys saved our ass. I remember one uh, one instance, this was north, just north of Baghdad going up, you know, we were convoying basically up into Tikrit. And we did this little uh, reconnaissance basically to, to make sure a couple of bridges and choke points were sufficient to get some of the big armor across. Uh, and we went, you know, pre, pre-dawn, everything was cool, totally calm. You know, it was pretty pristine little, you know, village outskirts of northern Baghdad. We come back, get in the middle of the fucking convoy, you know, six hours later, we're back where we were, you know, and at this point it's, you know, fucking noon or midday, whatever. Dude, you couldn't even recognize the place. I mean, you guys went through there and just fucking ruined everything. Like, you know, and, and Mattis was in charge of, of, you know, one Mardiv at that time. And, and uh, it was just, it was fucking awesome to see, like, we'd go, I mean, you'd be at, like up to your ankles and fucking brass in certain spots and buildings that didn't exist that were there six hours ago. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was fucking awesome to, <laughs> so awesome to, hear. to, yeah, to see the fucking uh, waste that you guys would lay. And then going up into Tikrit, same thing. I mean, we were, we were with the entire first Marine division and SEAL team three echo platoon, sweeping into Saddam's hometown. We ended up taking down his palace and, and uh, you know, being there for several weeks afterwards. But uh, it was just, it, it could not have been better to have you guys there the way that you did, the way you guys conducted yourselves. And, and I say you guys because it, it's, yeah, you guys are all cut from the it's same fucking us. cloth. I it's love all it. us. Uh, if you could, uh, just if you can kind of speak to the, the infantry experience and then being stationed in Hawaii and what was that? About? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, infantry, school of infantry was, I think it was eight weeks, maybe. Yeah, eight weeks, I think. So I went to school of infantry. You just learn basic infantry stuff, you know, um, patrolling and basically just, you know, seeing if you can cut it. I mean, not really seeing if you can cut it, but, you know, you've already became a Marine, but you're not, you know, you're just basically learning the basics, you know, and uh, became an 0311, went through that and then went out to Hawaii where, you know, you figure out after eight weeks where you're going to be stationed, yeah. stationed out in Hawaii. And then that's where, you know, I went to <clears throat> 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines. Where, where is the infantry school at? Is there, is there more than one of them? Yeah, there's two. There's one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Uh, but I went to East Coast, you know, so if you're uh, east of the Mississippi, you go to Paris Island. If you're yeah. west, you go to... Is it Pendleton? Pendleton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I mean, but in, in that eight weeks of training, how big of a group are you at that point? Is I mean, it it's a lot. I mean, we, I was, with, yeah, I mean, it was a big group. I mean, yeah. your platoon was probably a hundred people. Yeah. Any relationships that you forged then that, uh, that you still have today? No, you know, mm-hmm. not really. I yeah. mean, I still talk to some of the guys, right? Because yeah. most of the time, you know, the people who I was with, they went to third battalion, third Marines with me. Yeah. And then we kind of split up, right? I mean, I talked to a few, but. No, I don't, I don't really, I don't really talk to many of them. Yeah. I don't really talk to many. I, you know, I don't really, a lot of the Marines I serve with, I don't really have, I don't really talk to them much. Yeah. Uh, when you went to Hawaii, there was, uh, you know, again, just referencing the book, there's a couple of 
instances of kind of finding your way and, and, you know, realizing your niche and having some, you know, some good experiences with some guys and, and some less than good because of your hard headed ego type of nature. Can you, can you talk about some of the struggles that, uh, that, that led up to your first Iraq deployment? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I tell you one of the guys that, 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 you know, changed, changed my life is, is Danny Kreitzer. You know, when I got there, they just came back from, uh, They've been in the triad, so they've been at Haditha. Yeah. And um, they lost, they had a hard deployment. I mean, yeah. they lost a lot of guys. You know, and Danny Kreitzer, I mean, you know, he, I still talk to him today. Um, the guy is, he was my, he was our uh, squad leader. And that guy gave a fuck. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he, he, he gave a shit woke up every day to make you better, right? But he's hard. I mean, he was a hard dude. And he was, what, 30 then? Yeah. Yeah. He's an older guy. Um, but the guy, you know, I look back at it now. Then I was pissed off because, you know, every other squad's doing nothing. And They're Urs hanging is, out in Hawaii. Yeah, and Urs is a squad that's, you <laughs> know, out here going? patrolling, looking for IEDs, that he's, like, he's doing his own training. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and and you know, he's the guy that'd walk in and, give me a nine line right now. And like, you didn't know it. Like, I mean, you know, just the guy made sure we were more squared away than everybody else. And I look back at it now and I, you know, I, 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 after, after September 8th, a lot of shit came to circle with me. Right. Like a lot of stuff really clicked. I was like a lot of stuff that I thought was really dumb. Gosh, man, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's one guy right there that that I could say. I mean, and there's probably there's probably ten guys uh, throughout my life that if you took them out, I'm not standing here today looking at my daughters. Yeah, and he's definitely one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to me, there's there's a lot of parallels uh, between guys in that position, and and very similarly with me. I've I've mentioned it on a number of episodes that uh, you know there's. 200 or so fucking, you know, grown ass barrel chested freedom fighters at SEAL Team 3 that are responsible for me, you know, turning into yeah. any resemblance of what I have uh, turned into. And, and without that tutelage and mentorship of, of just being drilled into you hardcore that, that way, you know, through blood, sweat, and tears and, and et cetera, uh, you know, neither of us would be there. But I, I see a lot of parallels with parenting. You know, and that like a lot of times, you know, that that adage that everybody jokes of this hurts me more than it hurts you. Like it, that's fucking accurate. You it's know, accurate. is it like it's not your job to be your child's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got you you have to and it's imperative that they know that, that you're there to protect them and, and that they're safe with you. But but, you know, so many times people take it easy on them and, and uh, you know, want to be friends with them and, and win a fucking popularity contest and then end up fucking their kids over. And there's a lot of things that. I know for me growing up, my parents weren't especially hard, but they didn't put up with any shit either. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and at the time I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Why does, you know, Johnny get to do this and I got to, you know, whatever. And there, there's a lot of that, that parallel between, you know, raising good soldiers and raising good kids in terms of, uh, you know, making them do the things that suck, but ultimately, you know, they're going to look back on and I mean, it's all leadership. Yeah. All right, so you go to, well, so you, you go to your first, uh, before your first deployment, you get the, uh, you get to go through sniper school. Yeah. 
obviously that was a challenge. Only 13 graduated out of 30-some, right? Yeah. I actually um, dropped the seal. No shit. Yeah. You, you, you're proud of that? You like that little dick? <laughs> who, who the fuck was that? Can you say his name? Uh, What was his name? Um, or maybe you can. Maybe no, you should, I would tell you. Uh, what was I his just name? mean for his, his security. I can't, I I can't guess, remember but, his name. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it seems odd that, uh, I mean, because this was what, 06, 07? 07. I mean, at that point, we we've we'd had our own sniper school for several years. It seems odd that they would. We had four seals in our school, sniper school. Really? So three out of the four of them made it. Yeah, one of the guys went through. Just a credible guy. I loved him to death. Um, uh, but yeah, these guys, they were the seals. You know what they did when they were in school? Whatever the fuck they wanted to. They were always <laughs> in their pockets. all the time. Like Fucking long hair, hands. Yeah, in their long hair. I mean, it was always funny to be around. Them. <laughs> I mean, we always have those same types of experiences. I know when I went to uh, jump school at Fort Benning, which they don't send us to anymore, but, you know, it was always, get your hands out your pockets, Navy. You know, fucking nonstop, like, getting yelled at for all of the, you know, military bearing and discipline bullshit. Yeah. Uh, you know, nonstop, and none of them really giving a fuck. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of what you learned there, that played a, in a huge and integral role in your success, especially in Afghanistan, yeah. right? I mean, that... Uh, would you say that you wouldn't be sitting here today had you not gone through uh, that 100%. training? Yeah. You know, Michael Skinner is still just a, uh, you know, he was my uh, chief instructor and just still is a huge impact in my life. Yeah. So you go to, to Iraq with your unit from Hawaii, uh, and it gets cut short by, of all things, a fucking spider. Yeah. Uh, how did that affect you mentally? Bad. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I came back. Uh, I got sent home. I had two surgeries in Fallujah, Iraq. Got sent home, and, you know, I felt like I left, you know, I didn't get to finish it, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, a, a funny fact to all this is, is, you know, the total time that I've ever served in country is seven months. Yeah. You know, and I... Between Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. between both deployments. Yeah. I both I've never finished a deployment. Yeah. And uh, so mentally, I mean, that's a mind fuck for you, right? Like... Yeah. You know, you come home and it's over something so small, and it's just like a failure. I mean, it's a, it's, a, I mean, it's a failure. It's still a failure, but what are you going to do about it? You know. Yeah, I mean, all you can do is is what you did. You know, is rehab your shit, get yeah. uh, get back on the horse, and fucking and go back. But um, so how long were you in Iraq for then? Two, uh, two months. Two months. Yeah. Uh, so you come back, you get surgery, your hands all fucked up, and then uh, if you could kind of explain the process of of how you ended up in Afghanistan, because I know it was, you know, kind of a volunteer advisory yeah. thing and, and what your thought process was. Well, I had to get my hand back together. You know, the unit came back, and then obviously, you know, when the units come back, everybody, you know, the, the seniors, you know, usually get out if they don't re-enlist, or everybody's moving, right? Everybody moves every three or four years. Yeah. So they come back. We got a new platoon sergeant, uh, Gunner Sergeant uh, Soto Rodriguez, and just, a, he's another incredible guy. And um, w so I became a... I wasn't a sniper team leader in the beginning. I was a Lance Corporal. I was only one of the, there's only a few of us school trained still in the platoon. So we run some in docs. We got to get more guys and build up. And then just after, you know, after a little bit, like I built myself up to prove that I could be a team leader. And so I, uh, I became a team leader and then they promoted me to, meritoriously promoted me to corporal. Uh, and I became in charge of a six man team and kind of just, you know, just busted my ass to, 
made it my way in life. And so we were getting ready to go back to Iraq and we didn't really know where we were going. Isn't that 2009 timeframe? So you really, at one moment we're going to Afghanistan, one moment we're going to Iraq and it's like, you know, it's just, we never know where we're going. So finally we're going to Iraq. Um, we're out at 29 Palms, California, training to go to Iraq. Snipers really didn't have a mission. What we were going to be doing was we were going to be on Al-Assad I mean, we were trying to come up with all kinds of shit we could do, right? Like, well, we could fly uh, in helicopters to protect convoys and shit, like stuff that, stuff that made no sense, right? Yeah. And um, so we didn't really have a mission, and they came in and said, hey, right at the end of it, we need five volunteers to go to Afghanistan. We kind of asked, what's the mission? And nobody really knew, like, being an advisor, but, like, what's that mean, right? Mm-hmm. And so... They're like, well, basically, you'll just be, you know, training Afghans. And, like, I don't know. That didn't sound really that fun. But I was like, hey, you know, I, I'm in. I want to go. And so I, um, they actually let me go. And, and you know, they, they, they put me on this unit. And as soon as we had, like, 20 days to pack our shit up and to get, like, we had to do all these prequels. We had to get all of our shots and all this, right, and uh, get all of our records together and all that cool stuff. And then we went to Okinawa, Japan, where I met up with, with – the team, you know, it was a 21-man team. We all trained together, and then they broke you down to four-man teams to where you'd be on your own base with the 80 Afghans or your, you know, your Kandak or whatever mm-hmm. um, to be training and living with them yeah. to do it. Did you, so the, when you, you know, veer, took that fork in the road, we'll say, and went to Afghanistan instead of Iraq, the guys that you would have gone to Iraq with, what kind of deployment did they have? Like what, if you had just sat around? They got big. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am curious, I guess, you know, from, from your mentality throughout the book leading up to, you know, the, the meat of the story where, you know, the whole op goes to shit seems to be very offensive in nature and and i find a kind of a a curious irony in how your mentality has switched you know i've seen some some clips of other interviews you've done or just you know bits that you've posted on social media about you know the the loud mouth that always wants to go to war and and then that's de- who i was and, and desires that and that's I, who i was yeah i mean there's there's such a fucking paradigm shift and and you know you 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 get a really good sense, and hats off to Bing West and yourself uh, in terms of really painting a, you know, knowing you as well as I do and reading the book, like it does a, a really good job. You guys do a great job at at really portraying your your personality through there, and, and it 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 sounds like you, but um, that that mentality, you know, seems like it it got you in trouble a number of times. But can you talk to that that mentality and and where your head was at and and kind of why? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, man, I when I went over there, I mean, I I was always looking for a fight. I mean, I would. What, what do you think that was? I mean, was it proving yourself, or you just wanted to put in work, or what? I mean, I think I just had this idea of what it was is a little bit different than what it really was. Yeah, you know, like seen too many fucking movies. I mean, I think that a lot of times what we do, and I see guys still do it, guys who say they've been there or whatever. I don't know. I, I, I always say they say they've been there because I wasn't there with them, but who still romanticize what we do. And I think that, like, you know, you, you have all these people before you who've gone and supposedly done all this shit that tell you these stories. They're like, oh, yeah, it's cool, you know, kick in doors and shoot motherfuckers in the face. Nothing's better than that. Like, nobody ever looks at you and goes, man, it's scary. I mean, how many guys sit down and told you, 
before you went over there that like, I mean, they all talk about how fun it is. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was in a maybe a little more unique spot in that uh, I didn't really get a whole lot of heads up because, you know, we were on the initial push into Iraq. Uh, I mean, there had been a couple of deployments to uh, to Afghanistan, but but they were they were kind of isolated in nature by by comparison. I know for me, the very first real world mission we went on, I was fucking scared to death. You know, um, I mean, cotton mouth, asshole, puckered, you know, still went and did it. But and it was vastly different. You know, we had trained for the the oil platform op for six fucking weeks straight prior to doing it. I mean, it was on autopilot. You know, we'd done it so many times you could have done it fucking blindfolded. And the second we stepped on there, it all went out the fucking window. And it was totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, the movement was different. Emotions obviously were different. Um, you know, it, it was it was vastly different. But uh, agreed, like the whole time I was there, uh, it's fucking nerve wracking. You know, it's uh, it's scary. It's nerve wracking. And it's it's a hard, hard thing to wrap your fucking mind around. But um, well, me, I mean, you know, like we when what didn't help is. You know, I you know we got in a we got in a good gunfight. One of the first gunfights we got into in in Afghanistan. Uh, me and Kinnefik were in the so we we had these shower trailers, right? So we're both in there. Um, he's taking like we're both shaving for the morning, and uh, come out and all of a sudden I hear it's like static, right? And um, I was looking around. I was like, we're getting fucking shot at. And so you know I grabbed a two and my two forty ran up to this corner post and I see the motherfuckers on the side of the hill right there shooting at us because I can see the RPG trails coming right mm-hmm. and um, I fucking this dude turns around to run up the hill and I lit him up and <clears throat> that was the one where you hit him in the legs first yeah, yeah. hit him in the legs and ran it ran it ran it right up his back and I probably hit him three or four times I mean I don't know who knows right I mean it ain't like you go we we you know in there you can't go get them it's different mm-hmm. you know than in a town right like by the time you got to him somebody's drug him off. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kinefix sitting right next to me watches me just, you know, stitch this guy, right? And there was no connection there. You know, I mean, like, there's a, you said it a minute ago. You said it. You put you put one detail in there that's always interesting to me if they put it in there. Like when I really know they're really trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. When rounds get close, there's a difference. There's two. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been shot at a lot of times where you can hear them like come over or you know that they have no clue they're not aiming yeah it's a different it's different than when you know a guy has got it like he's looking through a scope his face is on a weapon and your body's at the end of yeah that sight picture yeah it's a different feeling right yeah indiscriminate fire versus intent you know or intended and so i had a lot of gunfights a lot of gunfights before then that were I mean, basically, like, you know, we, I mean, when we usually go in places, we don't usually go in places unless we're set to win. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of that before. And, man, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> there was nothing to it. You know what I mean? And I walked in September 8th. This, is, this will tell you how stupid I was. I mean, I would do things like sit back. The army would go out. They were actually, I'll remember the day they were holding the day that that picture of that book came. Uh, you can, the vehicles are on this side down the hill, but uh, this hill 1311. I mean, I can remember that day vividly. The army goes out there setting up a, a uh, not a, a combat, but they're doing a, a, a VCP, you know, vehicle checkpoint, setting it up there all day. They set it there because they knew they're going to get shot at. Mm-hmm. And I told them as soon as they start getting shot at to call me, say they need more ammo, that way I can go get in it. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the <clears throat> shit that I was, you know, that I would, I wanted to fight. Yeah. I wanted to fight. And it's kind of like that dog that gets one bite in him. He wants a bite, right? And I wanted to fight. And, you know, I literally walked in September 8th, 2009. The day I walked in that valley, I literally thought that there was nothing in that could have happened that if I did everything right, I couldn't get us out of. I, li- I really, like, I really, and I believed, I believed the, the shit that I said. Yeah. Do you think that there's an element of almost manufactured confidence that exists in, in the Marine Corps as far as that goes? I think we all have it, but I think you have to have it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, I think, I think the day that you start really logically analyzing what you're doing is a day you become ineffective. Yeah. Or, or at a minimum, a fucking liability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, an element of conditioning that exists that agreed is a hundred percent necessary, you know, and, and you, you, I think kind of always walk a fine line of, you know, dissent versus, you know, insubordination versus toeing the fucking company line, you know, and, there, and that's a fine fucking line to walk sometimes. Cause you don't want mindless idiots that don't think at all. A hundred percent. Like know. you don't want to make dumb decisions, but like if you really think about the risk you took, I mean, just in your training as a Navy SEAL. Yeah. I mean, when you can't think about it really, you, I mean, you, but because guess what? Yeah. Logically, it doesn't make any sense for somebody to throw you in a fucking pool with your hands tied behind your back and your feet tied together. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, you, you think about all these things. I mean, if you think and you don't have that confidence in you, you're a liability or you're dead. Yeah. I agree. I mean, so the the underlying theme, though, is that you your your perspective in that really being shot at never really took place until I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, I could only imagine the type of person I would be today if I had came home before September eighth. If all my gunfights, and that's why I always listen to people when they talk about their war fighting of. You know, in their perspective, maybe it was fun to them. But well, yeah, I think it, it's exactly it is that if, if you haven't had that other side of that that token. If you've never had to look a dude in the whites of his eyes as he's trying to kill you, or mining your different perspective of mm-hmm. war fighting is different. Yeah, for sure. That's is. probably why we think about it different. That's probably why you still like it and probably why I don't. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself running into guys regularly that uh, that you have that diametrically opposed viewpoint to? I, I don't, like, honestly, I've, I've kind of removed myself from it. Like, I don't ever bring up, like, I mean, I'm talking to you about, I've talked more about, I mean, Knives is sitting over there, he hears me every day. I'm talking to you more about war today than I will talk the entire year about war. Yeah. I just don't talk about it. Like, there's nothing, I don't ever want you to leave and think it's a cool story. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want somebody to leave and and, and think that it's, something I brag about. Yeah. Like, I don't want somebody to leave and think that I ever enjoyed it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't... Or at least up, up until... I mean, because it sounds like, you know, up up until September 8th, you did. Yeah, but you know what? what that wasn't... That, that wasn't... I, I did because it was one way. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you see, I always see these guys that walk around and talk about how badass they are and how they, you know, these guys that have never lost a, a fist fight, right? They all love to fight until they get their ass beat. Mm-hmm. And then they think twice about it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a humbling experience, no doubt about it. I mean, the you know, when you mentioned a, a minute ago about 
you can't imagine, you know, how you would be had had that not mm-hmm. taken place, you know, in terms of being very lopsided in your... Oh, I would have been, I'd have been the guy who, well, I like the chicken doors. I, I just want to go back to deployment. I just yeah. want to chicken doors and shoot guys in the face, right? Yeah. Like that would have been me. Yeah. I'd have been the guy that wore the dysfunctional veteran t-shirt, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that would have been me. You'd have the, the uh, with the fireworks sign in your yard. Yeah, right? oh, 100%. 100%. I would have had to get some yeah. attention somewhere. Yeah. I hate that fucking shit. Um all right, so one thing I, you know, out of the sake of of the experience, uh, I know that you've obviously talked about the the story in depth in the book, but I'd love to get the the firsthand account. Obviously, not in in that same level of detail, but for the sake of the men that were lost that day, and and uh, to be able to you know synopsize and highlight uh, the actions of of your teammates that uh, that aren't here. Uh, if we could walk through uh, that day, September 8th, and how it came to be. So, I mean, I, I'll try to give you the best version I can of it. Um, we were basically going to go in. We got in a huge gunfight on that Monday up at my base. Um, scared the shit out of me. It was probably one of the the first real, you know, real gunfights that, that, that I, you know, I thought I'd lost my whole team that day. I mean, from we had a rocket attack, and I'll never forget it. It was crazy. So later on that day, we got a call that said, hey, we're going to be running a mission. The whole team needs to come together. So, like, all everybody from different places need to come in, bring their Kandax, and we're going to run this mission into a place called the Gangegal Valley. And I had read up a little bit about the Gangegal Valley before we had been over there, uh, and the bear went over the mountain. I mean, I was the guy who, you know, to – I, yeah, I did have a lot of confidence, cocky, whatever you think. But I'll tell you this, I promise I trained harder than everybody around me. Like, I I took everything serious. I I knew more about medical stuff than any other, anybody else that wasn't a, a corpsman knew. I mean, I, I, I busted my ass to make sure that I lived that way that I was ready for whatever came down the pipe. So that's the only credit I will give myself. I, uh, so anyway, so we moved, we came down, the mission got pushed off. It was supposed to have been on, um, Monday cause we got in a huge gunfight, sorry, on Sunday and it was supposed to have been Monday and it got pushed off to Tuesday. And, and that was kind of the kiss of death though, right? And that was the kiss of death. And I didn't know much about the mission. You know I mean? We, they couldn't tell us cause it was over phone and we drive down there, took our Kandak down get down there and, you know, we get briefed on this mission the night before. And I mean, it was uncomfortable about the, the way, just the way it was planned. Do you know why I got pushed back a day? And for, for the listener that's completely oblivious, as I refer to you as the civilian assholes, yeah. is that you're essentially given the enemy, you know, or whoever in the area doesn't like you 24 hours notice that you're going to be at a location. Well, it's even worse. Like, you know, you could do that and probably get away with it with a sniper team or with, I mean, it's nothing to push it to the right. If you need to, it's better to push the right than to make it go when it's not right. Yeah. But you can't do that when you're working with, with foreign nationals. Yeah. Well, or, especially or whatever, meeting you know, you with know, foreign, them. Yeah. It, especially when you're, well, when you're meeting with them, all that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it's even worse when, you know, the, the village doesn't know who, what you're doing, but you have already briefed the commanders of the <clears throat> Afghan forces and the Afghan border patrol and the Afghan police that in, it's going to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, OPSEC does not 
doesn't work there. It doesn't exist. No, I mean, not against them. Like, I don't want to make them look bad. I don't want to tell you right now. Like, I, uh, up front, up front, uh, everybody's had their own experience. My Afghans are some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life, and I would die for them. And they were as close to me as the Marines that I served next to. I didn't just lose, you know, my whole team that day. I mean, I also lost five Afghans. Did you keep in touch with any of those guys? I tried to for a long time. When I came home, I'd Skype them all the time, but I've yeah. lost touch of them. I mean, yeah. I... I'm, I miss them. I mean, uh, those guys, I mean, I'm alive today because of them. We were all one. Like, yeah. I, I, I'll i say that till the day I die. And I'll tell you this, they were the only ones who came in and helped me when a, when a lot of Americans wouldn't. Yeah. And, it's fucking embarrassing. And uh, so we were going in. We get briefed on this mission. I got take took out of my team um, and replaced with a guy named Gunnery Sergeant Johnson. And, you know, everybody thinks that I had this that I just came up with this plan to go in that day. Me and Rodriguez Chavez and Kenefick and Lieutenant Johnson, we had this plan the night before. Can you uh, just do a, a quick kind of aerial overview of what what the, what you guys were supposed to do? Yeah, so we're going into uh, the Ganjagal Valley. The village elders that came to us and said they <clears throat> wanted to renounce themselves from the Taliban, start supporting the government. Um, it's it's the, it's the age-old deal, right? We're going to go in there and have a meeting with them to see how we can help them, support them, protect them from the enemy because it's not a black-and-white scenario over there. You know, we all try to make it out as a black-and-white scenario. Um, it's not. It's a, it's a lot of gray. It's a lot of hard stuff to do. And, and I don't know what I would do if I was in their position a lot of times, right? Yeah. So I want to say that on the backside. But we're going to go in there and, and, and basically have a lunch meeting with them and, and, and figure out what we can do. And so, you know, anytime we go into a village like this, you know, we're going to have overwatch. So we need to set our OPs up. We had all of our OPs. Uh, there was a guy in the back who we thought had some machine guns. So as we're going through the village, you know, we were going to swing in and check his house. Uh, and then as we're setting the OP up, and that was what Kenefick and Lieutenant Johnson and that team was going to do, that, that element. That's why they were in the front, because they were going to go push to the very back of the village. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. So we get up that next morning and... You know, we, we had an uneasy feeling the night before. And we get up that morning and, you know, looking back, I, did, I guess I didn't realize it then, but, you know, you know, when you start getting scared over there, you never want to let the other guy know you're scared because, like, you could be the only thing that keeps him pushing on. Mm -hmm. Just as the same as I look, you know, you always look at other guys to keep them, you, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. never want to. You never want to show your weakness because you don't want the other guy to get fear too, right? Yeah, you never want to be the reason that uh, the team loses morale or fucking confidence. A hundred percent. And so, you know, <clears throat> I always look back and, and, you know, when we started getting scared, or when I did at least, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think they did too, we'd always start talking about home to kind of get our mind off of it, right? And uh, the whole drive in there from the time I was in the gun – um, Kenefick was driving. Johnson was in the in the vehicle commander seat, the passenger seat. Uh, Doc Layton's in the back, and Fazel, our interpreter, was in the back. And when we were driving in that morning, like the whole thing we talked about was home. 
the the element of you getting taken off the team can you talk to that real quick though like so you got moved around essentially yeah i got moved around was told i was going to stay with the trucks i mean I, I gave a lot of argument about the way the mission was planned i just wasn't comfortable with it and ultimately the leadership told me that i'm an e4 in the united states marine corps so what do i know about mission planning um i mean i, I graduated from a sniper school and held an uh, you know an e7 billet in a sniper team that says that <clears throat> the marine corps says that i know about mission planning but you know obviously to a bunch of non-infantry people uh, i didn't know enough as, as, as they did so uh i i you know i don't know i mean that's that's you know i believe that that's that's the reason i wasn't on the team that day um because i didn't keep my mouth shut and so they took, you know, the best way to fix it is just to take me off and put somebody else on there. And so I guess if you could explain where you were supposed to be versus where you ended up. With the trucks, right? So you're talking about the, like. Yeah, but you were supposed to go in and do. I, I should have been. I mean, this is the first time from training to any mission that I wasn't in with my team. And I was replaced with Gunnery Sergeant Johnson, and they ended up leaving me with the vehicles as my team went into the valley. Yeah. So. Basically, I was just going to sit back there. It was kind of like a punishment, you know? Mm. And honestly, I was the only infantryman in the whole group. And I was left back at the trucks. And um, so we drive in that morning. Like I said, we're talking about home and just all the shit we're going to do when we get home. And, you know, as soon as we get in there, we, we start to park. And this is just how, how you know, fucked up. Like they pull into park and it's like, we'll leave, you know, I'm like, you're, you're leaving the vehicles on the road. Like, what if you like pull the vehicles off the, like I, I looked at uh, Lieutenant Johnson. I'm like, why are we parking on the road? Like, what if we have a medevac? How are we going to get the medevac out? Like get these fucking vehicles off the road at a minimum. Mm -hmm. And one of my big problems I had with this patrol is, is why, why are we not pulling the trucks in behind us? Like, yeah, you guys can lead. It's a 90 man patrol. You guys can walk in, but why are we not driving trucks in behind us? Um, and, and this is, put my hand on everything. This is the response. This will tell you everything about the leadership that planned this. We want to remain clandestine. <laughs> With 90 dudes. Yeah. So there you go, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the level of. Yeah. Uh, Idiocy. Yeah. What, out of that 90, can you do, give me the breakdown of U.S. versus uh, host nation? Um ballpark just say 15 to 20 us maybe yeah yeah maybe you know you had <clears throat> two four six so four yeah 20 probably 21 yeah yeah just broken up you know what i mean and so anyways they they go into enter it's still dark they get out of the truck and kinefic you know he tells you hey, i'll see you on the flip side and starts to walk in and, you know, you watch them go off. I mean, you can hear them the whole time. I mean, hell, you're, you're patrolling with Afghans. So, you know, you know what that's probably like. Um, and, you know, as soon as they got in there, the village lights flipped off. And it was, obviously, I wasn't in there. My interpreter told me that, you know, as soon as, because he was in the front. And as soon as they got to the front, um, the guys were standing there literally like looking like village elders. And as soon as they got to the village, it's opened up on them. And we'd been set up in every way. Like they had all of our overwatch positions had, had people above them. 
I mean, every everything that we had that day was set up. And, yeah, I mean, the fighting just started. And, you know, usually in a gunfight like this, you get a hard initial burst and then it kind of backs off. Like, you know, they don't usually last that long. It's like, hey, let me spray and pray and then I'm out of here. Mm. And, man, it was like, no, not in this one. So the, the hornet's nest got kicked over and it never faded away. It just kept coming. Yeah, like, you know, usually you kick the hornet's nest, you get stung a bunch in the front. <clears throat> you know, you take some casualties. You might have one or two stay in and, you know, until you start closing on them. But, like, this is like you go from small arms fire to RPGs, and now you've got 107 rockets. Now you've got – I mean, it's like now you got mortars coming at us. I mean, you know, we had mortars hitting near us at the – where we were sitting, at the trucks. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, it turned into, you know, it turned into a shit show. I mean, they were ready for us. I mean, they staged in a, a schoolhouse over to the, to the, I would say it's probably the right-hand side. I, I can't remember. I, mean, I don't remember the cardinal directions of it, but to the right-hand side over there. And, and it was an American-built schoolhouse. Yeah, right? we built the school. Yeah, And they were, they were shooting at us from it. So, you know, I, me and Kenner, me and, uh, me and Rod Rodriguez Chavez are at the trucks. And I knew something was going on before they got there because, like, it's never a good sign when they're leaving with all their goats and their their donkeys and everybody's walking out. As like, you're walking in? As they're walking in. That's never... Yeah, no shit. Look, if, if, let me tell you, one thing that's not good is is that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If there's one thing that ain't good. Yeah. If that's one thing that is a sure sign... The shit's about to go that down. shit's about to go down is when everybody's leaving the village. Yeah. So they start taking fire, start calling in for, you know, uh, artillery and the artillery gets shut off. <clears throat> a lot of the blame goes to the army on this. Right. But, but I don't, I don't necessarily blame the army because like I heard the confusion on the radio and I can't say that the people who were in there were painting a clear picture to where I would drop rounds. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like I, it was just, I mean, I heard stuff like, well, where are they shooting at you from? Everywhere. Like, shit like that, right? Like, how do I have... Con now, I will tell you this. The rules of engagement were bullshit that day. Stanley McChrystal put them in place, and and, and and the rule of engagement that was in place for call for fire in a village was complete bullshit. It was... It, it made it impossible to do, which I would like to think that looking back, he would probably change that. Do you, can you speak specifically to what they were? So basically the rule of engagement, I'd have to quote it. I know it's in my book, but uh, basically the gist of it, I'm going to brief it, was you couldn't fire within a certain vicinity of a village unless you had gone through it and cleared it and made sure that there were no friendlies in it. Yeah, Jesus. How do you do t Tell me how you do that. Yeah, I mean, that's basically you're not getting fucking support. 100%. Um, <clears throat> so there was that. You know, when Lieutenant Johnson tried to call for fire and put smoke between him and the village to exfil, which is a doctrine thing, he, you know, denied because of because it was too close to the village. Um, and there was nobody friendly in that village. Like, there was nobody. At that point, there was nobody friendly. And then, you know, there's another doctrine that, you know, when you give your initials, that it takes it off the commander back at post, if you need rounds, you give your initials, all liabilities on you. Still wouldn't go. I mean, all this shit you're taught to get past these things that are happening, still not, people not letting it happen. 
So there is a lot of liability on the Army, but on the backside of it, you know, there's a lot of responsibility everywhere. Yeah. Um, it was just a straight shit show. And this is what happens when people go into situations that they're not prepared for. Yeah. And um, so we're sitting back and we're listening. And finally, like, you can start hearing the dis, like, you know, when you know guys so much, you know when they're stressed, you can hear it in their voice. The air support wasn't showing up. They kept saying 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And it got caught up in another, uh, a tick that had a priority, like a troops in contact with a higher priority. They're trying to track down this HVT over in the corn goal. And um, so me and, you know, I looked at Rodriguez Chavez and just said, look, we got to go in. And so we, he's, he's all in, of course. And so we requested three or four times over the radio, you know, can we bring a truck in? My idea was is if I could take his truck, push it real far up into the valley, you know, hold these guys off while they, they exfil. Can you, about how far were you from where it was going down at this point? Man, probably a mile. No shit, that far. Maybe, I don't. A ways. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. Yeah. I mean, I could walk, I, was, I mean, I couldn't see the people necessarily, but I could see. The commotion. Commo- where they were at, right? Yeah. But so they, um, so we requested, and finally we just, me and him just looked at each other and just said, look. Fuck it. We got to do this. I mean, you know, because that's, I mean, that, that's what that's what brothers do for one another, right? Like, I didn't really give a shit. I, I don't want it to sound bad, but I, I really didn't give a shit about anybody else in there except my Afghans and my team. Yeah. I felt like the rest of them got their own <clears throat> self in there. And all I had done is I made a commitment to Lieutenant Johnson. And the last thing he said to me was, is, I know you're crazy enough to really do this. I know you will come get me. And I'd always told him that you make it to the road and I'll be there. And uh, so we start driving in. And, you know, we got we had some Afghans behind us in their, their trucks and their Humvees and stuff. And the first trip in, we didn't make it out hardly I mean, I think we had to turn around pretty quick because uh, I think it was we had a Mark 19 on that wasn't shooting very well. So we got a 50 cal and then headed in. And at this point, you didn't have author, uh, authorization no. to go. You just said, no, we're told no. Yeah. Like we were told no directly from uh, a major, a first sergeant, and I think a captain even got on there. So I mean, they, they were willing to not give artillery support and not let you guys go in there and just let their guys get fucking smoked. It gets even better. Uh, so we head in and um, as we come in we come down to one part Valdez this dude's incredible he's up there with Gunny Miller and so they could see they were on the left hand side they could see our truck so they knew we were coming in and they were guiding us because we couldn't see the road the road was kind of dipped off and stuff and we start coming down this road and we take a left and I'll never forget it's all terraced up through there. And you come around to the left and you take a right and it kinda comes in this dip and it goes up on this riverbed going up into the valley and the riverbed's the road. Hey man. When we took the left, they had already set huge rocks up to keep the trucks from coming in. You know, where Humvees couldn't make the turns. Mm-hmm. Rodriguez Chavez is just like <laughs> I honestly, like, I thought we were going to get stuck there and they were going to overrun us and kill us. Yeah. Like, if, if he hadn't have been driving the way that he did, if that truck, I promise, if that truck would have stopped, they'd overran us and killed us. Yeah, because there was 50-plus of them, right? I mean, that's, that's what they say. I mean, I, yeah, I mean. 
Hard to say. They say that. Swenson says that nobody was in there when I went in there. I mean, you know, it's it's always it's always you know it's always something. He's throwing hand grenades, but I, there was nobody in there when I went in. I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty unique. But when I took a right, we took a right to go up that valley. We passed them coming out. Swenson and uh, somebody else is carrying uh, first class Westbrook. They, I remember them coming out beside us, drop smoke, and there's a medevac helicopter landing. And, uh, but it's, it's back before, you know, it's outside the mouth of the valley. And so we come in, turn in, pass all that and start heading up into that valley. And I mean, it was crazy. I mean, was, there was just, there's like bodies everywhere and you got your wounded Afghans and they were like, even if they could move, they weren't moving because they're laying down on the ground and like they'll move their foot to let you know they're alive because they're pinned down. And there was a guy in front of us that comes up and he starts shooting at us and I'm shooting on the left and right and Rodriguez Chavez is running guys over with the truck. And I'll never forget he hit this guy and he goes, damn, I just hit one. And it was, I mean, they were everywhere. You know, they were running up to the side of the truck. I mean, they were literally so close to the truck to where like I, you, your, your 50 cal wouldn't traverse down. Yeah. And we would we pulled up as far as we could in the valley, started calling for my teammates, and I just couldn't get them on the radio. We were probably 75 meters from them, 60, 75 meters from them, the first trip in. You know, I think they were still alive. I got hit in my right arm. And it scared the shit out of me. And, you know, the whole time going in, like, bullets were hitting inside the turret because they had the elevation on you. And, I mean, I was just waiting to get hit in the face. I mean, I was just, it was like, it ain't a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, I, I call it the black, when's the black screen coming, right? And I got hit in my right arm. It scared me to death. I fell down in the, in the I felt like my right hand got really, not just sweaty. It's like a whole different type of sweaty. And I look down, I see blood coming out. I didn't know how bad I was hit. I didn't know where I was hit. And I fall down. I get down in the turret and I'm sitting on that, you know, that strap. And I, uh, I, you know, I was like, we got to turn around. We got to get another gun. My 50 cal was shooting single shot. I'm having to literally rack it every, every time. time. I, you know, I, I think headspace and timing went off. I probably got it too hot. And I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to shoot. I threw a 240 in the turret with me, and I've got my M4 up there, and I'm trying to shoot with a 240 on one side. I had the turret as one of those electric turrets, mm. so I had the the 50 cal on one side, 240 <clears throat> laying on the other, and I'm trying to shoot with the M4 wherever else I can. And um, I told him, I said, "Turn, we got to turn around." We turned around to go back outside the valley, and uh, you know, I left my guys. So we went out, we got another truck. I don't know what truck we got. We just jumped in another truck. The army platoon was there, a dog platoon. And I begged them to come in and help us. And they're like, hey, we'll bring our tow, tow gunner in. They tried to bring it in. And I mean, why the fuck would you bring a tow into a gunfight like this? I, I don't know, but that's basically all their lieutenant would give us. And he, he wanted to assess it. And he turned around. I'll never forget when we... <laughs> Fuck. We headed in there. Like he, he got into the mouth of the valley 
and that truck did about a 50 point turn to, <laughs> get, the, to get the fuck back out of there. <laughs> and, uh, 50. That's the first thing is Austin Powers trying to fucking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, backing that go kart up in the fucking hallway. Well, how how far or about how much time passed from when you made the decision? Hey, we got to turn around and go get a different truck. From the time you were there, get the truck and get back. How much time? Yeah, I got no reference. Nothing. I got no reference of time. None. You know, when we left out that first time, we did throw some guys in the back of the truck. Like we let them get in, like some wounded Afghans. Dropped them off. We had a casualty collection point. We went in the second time, same shit. Third time, I mean, same shit. And what on the third time, second, third time we went in, I had the Afghans bring in their Ford Rangers behind us. And I would jump out of the truck. Fazel, my interpreter, I put him on the 50 cal. And uh, he was covering me. And I would run over and grab the guys. And the guys who were dying, I would do the best I could with them. And I would put them, if they were dead, I would throw them in the bottom of the truck. And then if they had a chance to live, I'd, I would put a tourniquet on, whatever I could do. I didn't do more than an airway. Like at most, I'd do an MPA and a tourniquet. Like I, I didn't have time. You know, I'd do it. Obviously, if they had a suck a chest wound, I'd put a suck, in, you know, I'd put a chest seal on them. But like that's all I could do. I mean, I would stop the bleeding 100%. But I wasn't like sitting here trying to put gauze on it. Like you yeah. get a fucking tourniquet. Like it's, yeah. it's about what you get. And um, I just filled my pockets up with tourniquets. Were you pulling med gear from the rear? No, I kept med gear. So this is, this is how prepared I was. I always kept a huge med bag with me. In the? In, my, in the truck. So it was in the trunk of the truck. So what I did is I went back there and grabbed all my tourniquets out. Because I just didn't have, like, I didn't have fucking time to put a, 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 a chest you know, or a pressure gauze on. Like it did, like right now, like if you're, if you're bleeding, you're getting a tourniquet. Yeah. And, um. I was overwhelmed, man. So when you you were going back in each time in in the the third truck, basically that you yeah. that you got, did that have a working fifty in the turret? That- it did. So you know, we we I kept them to fifties. I kept the Mark Nineteens out um, because they're just not. They, I didn't feel like it was reliable enough. So fifties and two forties is all I brought in. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I had a working fifty. Fazel would cover me, and I would get out and. Um, just drag the bodies back one at a time. And, you know, I try to assess them, you know, get pinned down. You know, I mean, you start getting shot at. I mean, you're you're getting shot at the whole time. And um, just start carrying them out because I couldn't look. I mean, lost all comms with, with my team. So, I mean, at that point, when you're in there, you're getting fire from, you know, multi-different angles, directions. It's pretty constant. Were there was there any other activity for them to focus on, or was it just you guys going up there? You had Swenson and uh, Fabio and some other guys. You know, until about the third trip in, fourth trip in, they were driving another truck, uh, doing I don't know what they were doing, but but it was just us. I mean, there was basically a, one group of people that were all together. And that initial hornet's nest experience was every time you were going back in? The only time it would slow down is whenever the the Kiowas would come in. You know, they came in the second trip that we were in. They came in and uh, they would calm down them. But, I mean, Kiowas went Winchester I don't know how many times. I mean, we had two sets of Kiowas. One would sit outside the mouth of the valley, wait for this one to go Winchester, and the other one would come in. And they were just, you know. Yeah, so for the listener, the Kiowa is a, is a helicopter with – 
uh, gun platforms on it, and Winchester means running out of ammo just so that you're not completely lost. You civilian assholes, choke yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so when they would run out of ammo, the other one would come and replace them, and, I mean, they couldn't keep them loaded fast enough. And, yeah. you know, then we finally got some fixed wing on station, which is irrelevant in this situation kind of. I mean, there's not too many – I well, I'm, I'm not going to say there's not too many. I haven't found – too many pilots in the mountains of Afghanistan who are willing to do gun runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did find some that day. I mean, they we had some guys come in, you know, God bless them, like they came in and did some gun runs for us. But I haven't found, you know, usually pilots flying a bird that's going that fast, they're not going to aim it down to a mountain and try to, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I blame them, right? Yeah. And you couldn't really drop bombs in this situation. So on the third or fourth trip, third trip, I think, I met with the, our major and, and first sergeant, and I had accountability of everybody except my team. And I finally, I knew that if I came over the net, the, over the radio, and if I could confidently say that we have four U.S. missing, I knew that all this not having assets is gone, right? I mean, it's going to go to the top. And so I said that as soon as I could, and once I said that, we had assets stacked. The Army still wouldn't let... Uh, the QRF platoon, the Quick Reaction Force platoon, come in. You know, they asked, I said, we got four U.S. missing, and I, I, we begged for them to come in. And they said, well, are they Marines or Army? And I said, what the fuck does it matter? They said, are they Marines or Army? And so when we told them it was Marines, they shut down all help for us. What in the fuck? And um, so we had a whole platoon of guys, infantry guys, just sit at the mouth of the valley. And um, who the fuck made that decision? Yeah, the guy's uh, Major Granger. Have you talked to him? No, but I'd give. I tell you what, I'd pass up Dan Blazerian to get Major Granger in a fucking room. <laughs> you know, he got promoted. He got promoted. Like they. So here's what they did to him: they promoted him, and then they got him out. But the worst part about Major Granger is, is he ruined another dude's career, a captain that was in the talk, and just. Just Major Granger is a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a dude that that will die, and I don't know that me and him are gonna go to the same fucking place. Mm-hmm. So, but but that's the thing is like if, and that's where I've had to come to with a lot of this. Right? Is is there's a lot of people that day that that did a lot of terrible shit, and not just doing it, but lack of doing it too. Yeah. And for me to get peace with it, you know, I can get fired up. I could just talk shit about a lot of people. But I just, I know that, like, if they can live with what they did that day, then I, you know, then I'll go and try to live with what I did. Yeah. So on the third trip in, um, I got in the truck. The The truck came over. Uh, Swenson and Fabio were in a, like a, a it was their, their little uh, Ford Ranger or whatever it was at the the Toyota Hilux. Hilux, no, it's it Ford Ranger because yeah. that's what the art the, the they had, and I think he was Border Patrol, but whatever, it was one of the green ones, and so I jumped in with him and he drove over to um, there was this one body that was way over on the left hand side that we seen, and basically the Kai was when they'd come over they'd say spot, and that's where you know the bodies were below them, and he pulled over there. I said, I'll be, I'm going to grab this guy. And 
I run out and there's this terrace and it got kind of, it's the terrace kind of curved, right? Like a straight wall, you can clear a straight wall as soon as you look down it. A curved wall, you don't clear a curved wall. Like it's as far as you can see. And I came around and I come up on a guy and I see him face down and he's got these green gloves on, fingertips cut off. And I knew immediately then that it was one of my closest friends is Dada Lee. And Dada Lee was a 249, he's a machine gunner, he loved it, he was an NCO, he just, incredible dude. I mean, just taught me, he's one that probably taught me the most. Like, I didn't even need an interpreter with me whenever I took him, it would be, because I could speak enough of of, of Farsi, or uh, Pashtun. yeah, Pashtun. Uh, I can speak enough passion. We, they did. They did both. They did Dari, and they had so it depended. But I can speak enough um, passion to where I could communicate with him, right? So I didn't. Need, I, it helped us in a lot of situations. Just a really close guy, and he was going home for the first time uh, after this, and he. Um, so he'd been killed. He got. He got hit right in the. He got hit in the face, and so. I, uh, I go down to pick him up and I got down on like my, my knee. I was facing like my, my, I was trying to keep my body up as close as I could to the terrace, right? To make, you know, to, to, cause they're still, we were still taking contact. And I was trying, I don't know why I was fucking with him so much. I was trying to pick him up and I was trying, his gear was messed up or something like, I mean, he'd been dead. I mean, he was dead initially. I mean, he, he, he'd been dead for a while and cause he was stiff, you know, stiff, like the, you know, how their bodies get stiff. And um, that's probably the first one that really hit me that day. I mean, I, that's probably like, like seeing him dead, like really bothered me. And I threw him up over my, sh I tried to, tried to grab him. I was trying to move him over and I get like hit in the back of the head. And it was not like, it wasn't like, I mean, obviously I wasn't hit by a bullet, but like it was like a fist, like something like just somebody like almost taking like a broomstick and like hitting you in the back of the head. And I turn around and look up and it's this dude that, I mean, he had this huge beard. He was in, um, I remember he had this green, well, those green fucking chest rigs. You know what I'm talking about? Like those green, we call them Hodge chest rigs. Like, like a, almost like those play carriers had the three. Yeah. Like a Rhodesian rig. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he like had this AK 47 point at me, like trying to tell me to go with him. And I, uh, I don't, you know, obviously these are seconds, but it seems like it's probably the longest part of my life. And I just remember like, this is it. Like how this is going to end, I have no clue, but I'm not going to go get my head cut off on fucking TV. That's all I could think about. I mean, I've seen so many videos of dudes just literally on their fucking knees getting their heads cut off. And that's like our biggest fear. And I, uh, my weapon, I had said it, you know, like when you take a knee, I mean, I don't know how you guys do it, but I never kept my, I never wore a sling. Um, so I was always carrying my rifle. Well, when I set it on the ground, I'd always put the buttstock on the ground and I'd lean the rifle up against my leg, right? With the, the barrel facing up. And it had a, uh, I had a 203 grenade launcher on the bottom of it. And honestly, I had, first off, I didn't have any idea was the breech all the way closed because a lot of times I didn't keep the breech closed because, I mean, you know, th those things are... <laughs> They're kind of like... They're a little temperamental. They're a little temperamental, right? So a lot of times I didn't keep the breach all the way closed until I was about to fire it. I didn't even know if I had a round in it. Like, did I even eject the round before it? Like, I, I, 
all these things start going through my mind. But when I turned to look at the guy, my finger kind of like just naturally hit where that, I mean, cause it's a big open trigger for that. Right. Yeah. And, um, the safety was off. Yeah. I was just thinking the little, the little click black up. curved fucking safety. Yeah. That that's yeah. coming down. Right. The safety was off. And I just remember, I'm like, I tell you this, he would have killed me if all he heard was click. And I squeezed the, squeezed the trigger and it went off. And then the other part that I'm sitting here worried about, I mean, I remember all these details, is my arm hanging over the top of it, yeah. right? Like, you know, when you turn like that, is my arm in the way of it? Is it going to miss him? Yeah. I mean, this could have. Well, the other thing too, a fucking 40 mic mic grenade point blank isn't engaged either. It's, well, it's, and I, so I, and I, 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 you know, I knew that it takes 23 meters for the, to arm. And I, you know, I thought about that after the fact, obviously, yeah. but I was really happy about that. But I'll, I'll tell you, so it hits him in the chest. The guy hits the ground. And I never looked at him again. I, I don't know. Like I, I think about it. I'm like, why did I not turn around and fucking shoot him? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know why I just instantly go back to grabbing Dottie to get the fuck out of there. Cause it's like, I was like, well, who's with him? And, um, I reached down to grab Dottie and I kind of laid down because we're, I was getting, we were like, there was a machine gunner that was just, he was fucking lighting us up. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with firsthand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And I was on the ground on my right-hand side, and next thing I know, this motherfucker's like choking me. The same dude. The same dude. Why the fuck didn't and he shoot you? Is is you know? I'll, I'll, I'll give you the list of questions I got right after this. Right? <laughs> yeah, no so like, I'm fighting this dude, and like, I mean, this motherfucker's. I mean, I mean, it, it ain't like McMap in the Marine Corps. I mean, it ain't. It, it, I mean, this dude's choking you out, and you imagine his adrenaline going like yours, right? And mm-hmm. he's choking me and choking me and choking me, and like my vision just starts to. I mean, you get to that point. And I'll never forget, I was like, man, if my eyes go black, like if I black out, where am I going to wake up at? Yeah. Tied to fucking what? Tied to what, right? So I kind of, I don't know, I just relaxed. And, you know, and, and I always think about these things, but I kind of relaxed. And once I did, like he kind of loosened up a little bit. And, man, once I could get out from under his fucking arms... Like I got on top of him, we were, we were fighting for a minute, and I got him on his back, and I, I didn't want. I just I, all I could think about is I didn't want his legs to get a hold of me, and so I got up on top of him, and I'm fighting with way more gear than this motherfucker's got on. So it's a whole. I mean, it's not even a fair fight, and I get up on top of him, and I'll never forget. Once I got my knee up on his elbow, I got I got his arm pinned because I was holding his arm pinned back, right? And then I got his other arm pinned back, and I'm just trying to just maintain one fucking arm. Like my body's across him. I got my knee up on the one of his arms, like on his like on his like this part right here. And I just never forget that I was just grabbing for everything that I could, and I grabbed a rock, and it was 
I mean, I, if I picked one up the same size, I'd know it. And I just, I start hitting this motherfucker, right? And I didn't know what I was going to do with that rock. I just knew I was going to fucking hit him with it. And man, I hit, so I, the first hit, like I can see it. I mean, I can see every fucking detail of it, but I hit him on his left side and it kind of blew him, right? Like he, it, and then like, I mean, he's still fighting. I hit him again and I hit him again. And about the second or third hit, like I hit him right here. And I, that's the, probably the most vivid image that I have is his teeth kind of right here were shoved, pointed back. And that was the point to where he, I remember looking him in the eyes and he kind of like, I knew, he knew he was going to die. And that was where my whole life changed. I just, I mean, obviously I, I you know, I, mean, I had a job to do, but it was at that moment that I was like, I don't even know this guy. I don't. I don't hate him. I, this guy's probably got, he, this guy's got family that's going to miss him just as if I died, my family miss me. He's probably got kids at home, a wife. He doesn't believe he's wrong. We're literally here because we were born in two different places. And it was at that moment that like war was no longer fun to me. I mean, killing someone is murder. Just depends on which side you're on it. And I just kept beating and beating and beating and beating. And I mean, I can still remember like the noises of him choking on his blood. It, it's. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, look, I, I would, I'd do it all over, but did either one of us really know why the fuck we're there? I mean, you know, I look back at it today, and it's like it doesn't really look like it fucking mattered, does it? Yeah, it's a hard one to rationalize for sure. So I grabbed Dada Lee and <clears throat> uh, ran back to the to the truck, jumped in it, we took off, we made another trip in. And on the last trip in, the Kiowas flew over and said they spotted, at this point, PJs came in. And uh, the Kiowa flew over and said they spotted five bodies in a trench. And I had thought my teammates had got up in a, 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 a house and was holding the house down. Because that's what I'd have tried to do, right? Like, I'd have tried to push forward, get into a fucking structure, and defend the structure. And so I just thought that five bodies, it was just five more Afghans. And so PJs tried to land and they didn't land because they were taking too much fire and uh, they pulled back up. And so I told Swenson was communicating with them on the radio. I said, Tay, tell them to put a smoke above the terrace that, that they're behind. So they dropped the smoke. And as soon as they dropped that smoke, like I fucking took off and I jumped off that terrace and I landed in a ditch and, I land on top of Gunnery Sergeant Johnson. And then I go to the left a little bit, and there's Doc Late and all of his medical gears out, and he's laying on top of, face down on top of Lieutenant Johnson, who's face up. And then I go to the left a little bit more, and there's Kinefic, who was face down with his GPS in his left hand. And they've been stripped of their gear. 
of their weapons, of everything. And so we just, I just picked them up, carried them out one by one. The Afghan soldiers helped me put them in the back of the Afghan trucks. And we put the uh, Gunny Johnson and Doc Layton in one vehicle. And I put Lieutenant Johnson and Gunny Kinnefick in the other vehicle. And I got in the truck, and so we had to exfil out. That was all that, like, we'd had accountability of everybody. And uh, we started to exfil out. We let the OPs pull down. And when the OPs started pulling down, I seen them, they were safe. I got out and I ran up to the Afghan vehicle. And it, uh, it was basically like supposedly like a high back, but didn't have the canopy over it. And I ran up to that as an Afghan driver. Fazel jumped in with me. And it was the Afghan driver. And I look at this now, and I'm like, how crazy is this? But it's the Afghan driver, one one vehicle, the other one had already gone back. The Afghan driver, Fazel, me, Kinefic, Lieutenant Johnson. And I said, I'm going to take this truck back. I just let him know. I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to take this truck back. So we pulled up. All the we guys were passing all the fucking the army guys that were sitting there. I said, hey, can you give me two? two poncho liners. And so I just, you know, I just, I don't know why, why it, not that it really fucking mattered. Right. But I just, all I can remember is I just wanted to put those poncho liners over those guys on the way home. And honestly, I think I wanted to do it just because I didn't want the enemy to see that they fucking killed them. Like I didn't want any of the fucking Afghan villagers. I didn't want anybody to fucking know that, that they killed them, who they killed the Americans. And so we're driving out, man, and I'm so glad I had Fazel with me. I'm driving out, man, and as soon as we pass the Army platoon, we kind of go got to go around this. It's probably three miles, three and a half miles back to the base. And uh, these fucking cocksuckers are laughing at us. The villagers? Yeah. They're sitting behind this Army platoon, you know, all the people that had left, and they're just pointing and laughing at us. And um, I pulled my gun up. I was going to fuck shoot them. I mean, I was going to fucking kill every one of them. And I, I would have, fu- I, I promise I'd have felt better about killing those motherfuckers than I would have anybody else. And I pulled my gun up to shoot them. And Fazel's like, it ain't worth it. He's like, it ain't worth it. And they were pointing and laughing, you know. It was almost like you driving down, like, just got, I mean, they're on both sides of the road just fucking laughing. And um, so we go back in and we pull in and, you know, you get on base and I'm, I pull in and so I'm in an Afghan vehicle and they stop me at the fucking gate and they're like, well, where's your patrol at? I'm like, is this, is this a joke right now? I'm like, where's the, free? I just need to know where the freezers are. Well, you can't come on here. Where's your proper PPE? And I'm like, look, I just need to know where the fucking freezers are. And uh, she said, well, why? we got to, we, I got, we got to tell, I don't know, whoever they were going to fucking tell, right? And so finally I just took, I pulled one of the, the poncho liners back and I said, I just need where the fucking freezers are. And they're like, that way. So we get down there and now all the teams are there. Like every team that, I mean, they were bringing teams in from other teams, like coming in to to help us. 
And because uh, this has been going on for, I mean, a while. Was it like six, seven hours? Six, six to eight hours. When you, uh, that last trip in, were you taking every bit as much fire on that last trip? Not as much. That last trip wasn't as much. I mean, we were still taking quite a bit, but not. And so once you pulled out, did American forces So on the way, as we came out, I was friends with the 20th group. They're reservists. Love the guys. Maddie, I love those guys. And um, so they had actually called me and dad over the radio. And these guys heard it. And they knew it was us because we had talked to them the night before. They were going to run another mission, but we were running this one. And so when they heard what was going down, they tried to spool up and come in, had some problems of, you know, commanders not letting them. Finally, they just said, fuck it, we're going. As I was heading out, they were heading in, and they fucked that valley up all night long. Like, they chased those dudes all the way back across the Pakistan border. They get a lot of them? Basically, it was empty by the time they got there. Yeah. Um, but I think they found like a terrain model in there and everything. I mean, these guys were, I mean, they were Pakistan military. Yeah. And um, so I got back on base. I took my two guys out. Sergeant Major Carabello, I love him to death. You know, he came over to me, he said, hey, devil dog. He goes, hey, you've done enough. My guys will get them from here. And I said, your guys won't touch my fucking guys. I said, this is this is something that that I'd want done for me and is I'll finish this, I, you know. It's my job. And Bocas is is the only other guy that would help me. Um, obviously, I mean, Rodriguez Chavez wasn't there, but out of all the guys who were there, Bocas is the only other dude that helped me do it. And so we moved him in, put him in the freezers, and, you know, did the thing that we do. You know, we turned around, put them. We asked the PJs. They landed, had to refuel. We asked them if they'd take the bodies to Bagram and get them home. And... uh so we hurried up and got them in body bags, put the tape over their head, and uh, draped them. I think we put the flags on them there. And then we put them back in a truck, put them on the birds, and let, let them go. Then I went right after that, and I wasn't going to go home yet or go back to base yet. I went over to my Afghan side and helped them do the same with their dad, gave them the same respects of, you know, I helped went through all of our Afghan guys, the guys that were wounded, helped get them medevacs out. And then after we got everything cleaned up and everything kind of sorted out and all the guys that had died, which um, which that day we lost 10. Altogether we lost 11 from the gunfight. But um, got them all out, and then we I went over and just got some dinner. I'll tell you, hearing, hearing that story, you know, firsthand, from from you in that manner is uh there aren't really words that <clears throat> you know do do justice as to the emotion that i feel i i purposefully read all of your book except for the story for that reason is to to have a both natural reaction and and to have the questions that that anybody would have listening to it uh, it's the first time i've i've heard it i you know intentionally didn't listen to any of the other interviews where you where you talk about it and uh, it's, uh, you know, I can't imagine my reaction is probably any different than just about everybody that uh, that hears you tell it. But um, God damn. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciate you, you going through it again. I know that that shit isn't easy. Um, but I also think it's uh, imperative that stories like that are, are told. Um, our country needs to know 
what our guys go through in, in every aspect, right? Not just the actual account of what happened, but the thought processes behind it, how it impacts you. But on a broader scope from a foreign policy ROE standpoint, yeah. you know, the decisions that, that some of our uh, commanders and above make that, uh, that hamstring and fuck over our troops, those, those need to be highlighted and, and should be held accountable for. Unfortunately, it sounds like they haven't. For for that moment and, and going through that and then afterwards, obviously, the the swirl of emotions that, that was taking place, um, you know, post that, you talk at length about it in the book, um, you know, the, the weeks that drug on afterwards and whatever. Can you talk a little bit about both where your mind was at in, from then until you went home, uh, including the ping pong loss that, yeah. <laughs> that ultimately sent you home? But also, you know, was there any... Uh, follow up on your end in terms of trying to hold those guys accountable. I mean, obviously, as an E four, there isn't really a whole yeah. lot you can do. But what if you, if you could tell us about that? I mean, that you know, they did a damn good job of of covering ass. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's a pretty good thing. I mean, that's what officers are real fucking good at, right? Um, at figuring out a way to make sure that that, that they're not going to be held accountable. Yeah. I mean, I'd be held accountable more for a DUI blowing, you know, 0. 0.001 over uh, than they are for getting people killed. I mean, that you know, that's, yeah. just, that's just bureaucracy at its best. So they did a damn good job on the way they did the investigations, and, the, and, and they did a real good job on who they investigated and who they asked. They did a really, really good day. They, they, trust me, I would say they had a, a, a plan on how they were going to get this covered up, or not covered up, they didn't cover anything up, but how they were going to manipulate this and, and set this before we even got back to base that day. Yeah. They had a better contingency plan for oh. for uh, eliminating their responsibility than they did for actually going through the mission. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they did the whole investigation without us even really knowing there's an investigation. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a lot of weird a lot of weird shit happened. Yeah. So, I went back to base 2 days later. I got another really really big gunfight 3 4 days later. Um, were your uh, was your mentality and or your actions in that gunfight different now because of going through that? Ooh, yeah, my give a fuck was a lot less. Like, I think regards for my safety was not there. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. as far as I would say, going rogue was pretty accurate. Was there an element of uh, vengeance and retribution that you were trying to? Yeah, I was him. not going to like, I had a true reason to hate these motherfuckers now. Mm -hmm. You know, like. It was personal now. It was personal now. Um, kind of like if, <clears throat> like we all as Americans hate, hate terrorist organizations because of 9-11. But I bet with you we don't hate them near as much as kids who grew up without their fathers or mothers, right? Yeah. Um, so now I had the reason and, the, and it was a whole nother level of, of just hatred and um so you know I, I didn't i didn't really i mean i turned around and got into gunfights so much after that that i never really processed it um, i was fortunate to have uh, staff sergeant richards and uh, bocus uh, sergeant bocus come back with me and 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 you know really immediately take me under their wing sergeant jeffers um kerr i mean i had a lot of good guys that really immediately just just kind of like Hey, um, got gotcha, you, but let's pull the throttle back a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, 
Was there an element of almost therapy that existed in getting, you know, so to speak, right back on the horse and getting right back into it? Do you think that was a good thing in, in a way? It was the best thing for me. It was the best thing. To not have to sit there and replay it over and over and just get right back into the fucking mix. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's what I mean. I mean, you know, I mean, it's what you have to do. Like, I mean, we still had a mission to do. Like, I, I the you know, what's worse than losing four guys is fuck. What if you lose more because you know yeah. because you're out of it, right? Like, you know, they they wanted to send me home to go to the funerals of my teammates, and I, why? I mean, they're dead. The mission, I gotta go. Like, they're I I promise me going to their funeral is not gonna save any lives. Mm-hmm. And I had a responsibility to my to my Afghans. You know, after that gunfight, like the Afghans really respected me. Um, we got closer than ever. And I'll never forget, you know, when I was pulling my teammates out that day, they came to help me and I said, no, don't, don't touch them. I got it. And one of the Afghan soldiers, you know, and they're, they're hard. Like they, they live in it every day. They're, if, if the war was fought on heart, they kick our ass all day long. But they, you know, one of them, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you helped us carry our people out. We're going to help you carry your people out. And that meant a lot to me, you know? So anyways, uh, it, it was, it was a whole different, like when I got back, it was a whole nother ball game. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was a whole, it was just, it was another level of, of, you think you had a reason to fight before, like you got another one in you. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think going back and getting right back into it was probably the best thing for me. What uh, what types of missions were you doing uh, in those numerous gunfights post conjugal? Um, you know, so the one that we had right afterwards, the big one was a combat logistics patrol got pulled up in a uh, they got held they were getting they got trapped in a in a Dob Valley Dob Quar. Um, I actually send you the write up over. I, I honestly I'd never read the write up until the other day, and. I read it and I was like, holy shit. I think everything after Gangegal just kind of blended together. I, I I didn't really remember the details. Uh one thing quick, you'd mentioned when you got hit in the in the right arm and blood all the way down your your hand, obviously that wasn't a operational ending injury. No. What what was that? Was it shrapnel? It was a, yeah, it was a piece of uh it was a piece of um about a two and a half, three inch piece of steel off of off of a rocket. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, I just I just pulled it out, and I didn't even tell anybody about it until a few days later. Yeah, it really didn't matter, right? So yeah, we that that was a combat logistic an army patrol that got stuck in a valley, and um, the army was going to take them an hour and a half, hour hour and a half to QRF it, and I just I didn't answer to anybody, so I just went on my own. <laughs> so you know we didn't. I mean. Yeah. How long does it take us to drive there, right? Yeah. So I technically I fell under Afghans. So was it just you with them, or were there other? No, there was so Bocus and uh, Richards was there, and actually, what was funny was is when that happened, the headquarters team had came in to pick up. I just got done inventorying all my teammates' stuff to send home to their families, and they came to pick it up. Yeah. Did uh, Did you keep anything in theirs? I did. I took their, um, I took Lieutenant Johnson's rank off his, I mean, you know, a lot of people probably get mad about it, but like, no, fuck that. They, I, uh, I would, 
I'd take things to remember. remember well, if I didn't keep it, like if I didn't keep it, like anything on their body, they're going to destroy anyways. Yeah. So I took off Lieutenant Johnson's rank. I kept their dog tags. I uh, took off Doc Layton's rank and I took off Kenefix's rank. Yeah. Um, and I, I kept all of it. I still have it. At, at, and I still have the cover that I wore that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So the, there's one story in the book that uh, doing what I do for a living really fucking pissed me off. And yeah. it was the, you probably already know where I'm going with this, is that uh, when you got back that uh, basically while you guys were going through this, uh, First Sergeant had shot Annie the dog. Yeah. What the fuck was that? First Sergeant Coleman. Um, so they had this deal where like, I mean, we get a lot of stray dogs on base. And the way that they were having to get rid of them where they would they were shooting them. Um, I had a we had a pet dog, Annie. She had been vaccinated. She went everywhere with me. Like so she was Lieutenant Lieutenant Johnson. Like I, I'm not really a big dog guy, right? We had uh Annie and um what was the other dog's name? Uh Alf. Alf and Annie, I think. I think it's Alf. I don't know. He was so Alf was there before, but Annie was a little. She looked like a little yellow lab. I mean, she's a mutt, right? But she's like just a little puppy, man. She, she kind of like gave us. She's so funny. Like Lieutenant Johnson loved her, but they were kind of like our getaway a little bit, you know? Like no, I mean I talk about it a lot, and that you know the the element of dogs on an operational level speaks for itself, but. In a, in an environment where chaos and anarchy and violence and the unknown is constant, having that s small sliver of what you know most Americans grow up having some semblance of a relationship with a dog, whether it's one with their their own or a friend's or whatever, is that brings a lot of solace to to yeah. that environment. Having a a dog to pal around with and and they're fucking crucially important. And she was like, I mean, I I mean, you gotta take man. I mean, I just. Um you know, I left. I mean, I just came back that day, and the only thing I had left of my teammates was that dog. I mean, everything. Everything I had was killed. And um, so I came back, and they had this thing going on to where all dogs got to go. And so I actually went to first sergeant that day, that, that day, around lunch. The day you got back. Uh, it was a couple of days. I was actually still, it was, it was within three or four days yeah. because I was packing up all my shit or all my teammates stuff. No, no, it was after, after that, about a week or two later. I don't know. But anyways, I said, look, this dog's good. Look at her. Um, she always followed me to the chow hall. You know, she just went everywhere with me. And I said, look at her like this dog's good. And he, he agreed. Everybody agreed. Every, all the, all leadership, everybody agreed that it was okay. And man, I'm in the Connex box getting ammo out or something. I don't know. I think I was setting up a new Mark 19 position or something. I don't know. I was probably in there playing with demo or something stupid I shouldn't have been doing. But um, I hear a shot at the fire pit right behind her base. And I could hear her yelp. And I knew her yelp. And I hear another shot. And I come out that gate. We had our own little gate. And I come out that gate and go on the Army side, and I walk around there, and I see this blonde-haired fucking sergeant that did nothing but sit in the talk. He always carried around his shotgun. Like, he, you know, that was, his, that was his deal. Like, he always sat in the fucking talk. Skinny little guy. And I looked at him, and I was like, did you just shoot my dog? 
No. Everybody on that base, everybody on that base knew our fucking dog. Everybody. And I said, did you shoot my dog? No. And I grabbed him by his arm and I drug him back over there and I said, let's go see. Let's go fucking see. And I go back around and laying on top of the fire pit was fucking my dog that he had just killed. And he's like, first sergeant told me to do it. First sergeant told me to do it. I said, okay. And I walked over to the Army side, and this actually where that scar right there is from. <laughs> I walked over to the Army side, and first Sergeant Coleman, that motherfucker, standing there smoking a cigar, waiting, because he knows I'm coming. Smoking a cigar, sitting outside smoking a fucking cigar. And he's got this shit-eating smirk on his face. And I fucking, I hit this Hesco right next to him. Like, everybody knew what was going on. Uh, Sergeant Jeffers came and grabbed me. I mean, it was like, what else are you going to kill? What else are you going to take from me? You know, you guys already left me out to hang, watch my teammates die. Like, what else are you going to do? And it just, yeah. That was it, though. You know what the good thing was? is like, at least they killed everything of mine, right? At least they took it all from me. I didn't want anything left. At least, at least I didn't leave anything that I started with in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, I suppose there is an element of, uh, of closure to that. It's, uh, you know, all or nothing. But, uh, I, like I said, reading that shit, especially when, you know, one of the points or one of the sentences in the book, you say, you know, I'll, I'll bet she came right up to you wagging her tail, you know, when you, when you shot her and it just, yeah. you know, again, with, with having to make decisions with these warrior dogs, you know, right now we've got over 20 of them. Um, and we're responsible for the end of life decisions on all of them. And it's fucking tough every goddamn time. Um, you know, but, uh, just hearing that and, and, you know, knowing what you'd been through and seeing that it, it, for me again, you know, I'm probably maybe a little different than, than some readers, but I know it'll resonate similarly with a lot of people is that that was one of the hardest things in the whole fucking book for me to read, frankly, you know, which may sound ridiculous. to Yeah. I mean, I gar- I mean, I guarantee you that like, probably the hardest part about shooting her was uh, trying to get her to stand far enough away from you. And she's probably roll over on her back because she thought you were going to scratch her belly yeah. to get away from her because she's probably coming to you to lick you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no, shit, that shit uh, infuriated me. Well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how you didn't fucking break the dude's fucking jaw. Well, if I, I mean, it, you know, without, without Jeffers or Kerr, I probably would have. So for the next couple of weeks, um, you know, you get in a number of gunfights and it becomes clear to a lot of, of your teammates now, um, you know, they're, they have some concerns about you from a, a PTSD standpoint. And there's a female psychologist there that basically says, you know, you guys strike a deal where you're going to play fucking ping pong. Question is, man, I'm glad she beat you, but how the fuck did she beat you? Well, <laughs> she beat me about one point. <laughs> I mean, hey, a win's a win. But she also let me know afterwards that it wouldn't have mattered if I won or not. So Yeah. You think deep down you wanted her to win? No. You tried, tried to beat her? Oh, I was doing everything I could to beat her. What was your hesitation for um, for being able to let her decide that? <clears throat> I mean, I, I just, I mean, you know, not only did I fail my teammates, now I didn't even finish my deployment. So I've I read that a couple of times, and I, I've seen you remark on it in a number of other instances, and I'm curious 
uh, I think it's a common thought process for people in, in that position when uh, guys that they're close to around them die and they don't, that they failed them and, and what have you, and that wreaks havoc mentally on, on the survivors, you know, survivor's guilt and, and et cetera. Have you, whether it's through therapy, whether it's through time, whether it's through your own mental processes of self-reflection, have you come to, to terms with that better than initially, or is it something you still struggle hard with? I mean, I think it's just something you just finally become numb to, right? I mean, it's kind of like, I'm not going to say numb to it, but I mean, the facts don't change, you know? Like, you talk about it. I mean, you talk about, I mean, you can't change the facts. I mean, you're, you're a guy who lives a, a certain way by a certain code, and that code's the same whether you win or lose, and right? And uh, you don't you don't get to change the facts just because you lost, right? You don't change the facts, like, just because you don't want to see what the front of the picture is, you don't look at the back of the book. So, it, you know, it makes it easier for the loss, right? The loss is lost. The facts are the facts of that day. I guess, why, why do you feel like you've you failed them? I mean, they're all dead. Agreed. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I... But, do, I mean... It's, well, it's, so, not a, it's not a... Like, it's not an arguable... Like, it's not... There's no... There's no arguable facts about it, right? Like... No, I mean, yeah, there's there's no disputing what yeah, happened. No disputing, yeah. Um, I guess my question is is more from a, almost from a theoretical standpoint, yeah. in that do you honestly think that if you had not been replaced that you would have been able to make a difference and that they would not be dead now and it just your name would would have replaced Johnson's name? I, I guess, like... Do I think I could have saved them? I, I don't think I could have. I don't know that I could have saved them, but I do think that it would have been a better shot of them making it out. I do think that if I'd have kept my mouth shut, I'd have been in a more of a place of where I should be than I am now. Mm -hmm. I do believe that if I hadn't have turned around on that first trip because of myself, like if you think about all these things, like my guys are dead because I was selfish. How, I didn't, how, do, you, how I, do you figure that? I didn't keep my mouth shut. I should have kept my mouth shut, let them handle it. And if nobody handled it, then I, I should have just, at least I'd have been with my team and they wouldn't have had to gone in by themselves, right? I, I, I shouldn't have turned around when I thought I was hit on the first trip in there, because I mean, what if I would? What if they stopped because like the truck turned around? That's the last hope that they had, right? What if they hesitated because of that? You know, you know, you you talk about that. You talk about, you know, and then the other part of it is, is you know, we live by an oath of you either get them out alive or you die trying. Well, if you didn't die trying, you you didn't try hard enough. Uh, well, not necessarily, in my opinion, and that you know, to me, it's. You know, like you said earlier, is that, you know, you're, whether, even if you're looking at nature versus nurture, is that uh, one of the things that you said that, that struck a chord, I think, is that you made the decision to, right? Just like the guys that wouldn't help, the commanders that wouldn't offer assistance, that wouldn't allow some of their assets to be used, other guys in the trucks that wouldn't get out when you're banging on the fucking window with bloody hands to even get water that won't help you. You know, they made those decisions. To me, I think hindsight, if hindsight's 2020, 
I'd be a fucking lottery winner. You know, like 100%. any of us can sit here and say, well, if I'd have done that, this would have happened. The, the way I look at it, and I, whether or not this proves to provide any solace for you or not is irrelevant. I'm going to, I hope that it does, is that we all make the best decisions we can with what we have at the time we make them. They're not always going to be the right one, right? But when I think of being in the position of if it was me, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say that it was you that was one of the guys that died that day and, and just pick one of them were now in, in your position. If you're a dead guy and, and you know one of your brothers is struggling with that, blaming himself, would you be all right with that? I mean, would, absolutely not. I mean, I wouldn't want him to struggle with it, but I think that... Would you want him to hold himself accountable for your death? I mean, I, no, obviously I wouldn't, but I, the guys that I was with would. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I get your point. Like, I, to, But to, to me, to be able to move on, you know, there, there's two things. One is that I think from a mental health standpoint, it's important to realize that. But on a broader scale, when, it talk, when we talk about, and, and there's an instance of, of later on, which we'll get into, but of you putting a gun to your head, right? Yeah. Is it, I mean, because I've got, I know a lot of guys who've been killed. There's been a, a handful of them that were very close friends of mine. And that's something that I've always thought of, is that, you know, if I was in their shoes, you know, if, if I was dead, and I knew that Glenn or Ty or Matt Mills or any of the guys that I was close with was sitting here thinking about fucking putting a bullet in their brain because I'm gone or because whatever they did may have hypothetically, possibly, potentially contributed to me being where I'm at. I look at it as, motherfucker, you better not do that shit. Yeah, I mean, I... I I get your point, you know. The other problem on the back side of it is is you take the motherfuckers in the command center, the army guys that didn't, the 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 leadership that was on the ground that day, the Marines that were leaders that day, they've all done that and they feel like they've done nothing wrong. You can't so, control them. Well, I know, but I get your point, but like that's just not the way life is. Like I don't I don't get to change the facts of that day to right. better help me get through life, right? Like, I think that I've got to the probably the best point that I'll ever get to of, I just hope my guys forgive me. I guarantee, I mean, again, I, to me, put yourself in their shoes. Well, you know, I, you, you know, you know, you, you know, you, you made all, every decision you made, not out of cowardice, out of thinking this is the best thing to do right now, the same way they would have. A hundred percent. But like I said, I mean, I, I do think that, like, you still have to take responsibility. Like, gosh, like, I definitely don't think that they would want me to go the rest of my life being miserable, which is, I think, probably the little bit of peace that I get from it. But at the end of the day, like, I made a promise to them to get them out, and I failed. And that's just the reality of it. It sucks. It sucks to look at it that way, but that's just really the the facts of it. And no, I don't think that they want me to suffer the rest of my life. You know, I don't think that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of families who find a way to forgive murderers who murdered their family members, right? Like, mm-hmm. 
I, I just, I, you know, that's, that's the best that I can do with it is just go to bed at night and just hope that somewhere deep down that their families, that, that, that them, that they can for, forgive me for, for letting them down when they needed me the most. That, that's the only thing that I can, I can just hope that someday somebody has some leniency on me. Well, yeah, uh, I, for I, that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, I guess it, it pains me to hear that element of your perspective on it because, you know, you, you did a lot. Um, and, and again, if, if, I mean, cause you can hypothetical it the other way too. I mean, you, you know, you, you could say, well, maybe they were already dead before you even got there the first time you got there as quick as you could. Maybe they were dead before then. Maybe if you had stayed there longer, you'd all be dead. A hundred, well, hundred percent, and I and I and I get it, and 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 they, I don't, I don't believe they were dead when we got there. I mean, I've read all the, I mean, I, I could probably, you know, I, you know, I know it's, this sounds probably weird, but like, I could probably verbatim give you all the autopsy reports of them, right? I mean, um, I think, I think Lieutenant Johnson was probably dead before I got in there, but I think the other guys were still alive because two reasons: my interpreter was still with them. And I got to him. I think they all stopped to help protect Lieutenant Johnson. He'd been wounded first. So I think he was probably dead on the first trip in. I think the other guys were still alive. And I almost know Kennefick was because he was still on the radio initially when I was coming in. And he was trying to call for fire or uh, give a location to pick up um, a medevac for where they were at. And that's why I found him face down with his GPS in his hand. So, yeah, I, I get I 100 percent. I 100% get you. Um, and I, and I appreciate it. I mean, look, I, I, I do. And, and I, I try to, you know, I mean, try to, I try to what if this thing all day. Right. I mean, just like the guy that, you know, stood over me with a gun. Right. Why didn't he shoot me? Like, why, why, why? like, did he really think he was going to get me back? You know what I mean? Like, did yeah. he really, why did he not just shoot me? Well, did well he especially, not? especially after you opened up on him with the grenade, but yeah. Why? You know yeah. what I mean? Well, you know what he, what if he didn't have ammo? What if he's trying to Buffalo me? Right. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like I think about all these things, like. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, to, to your point, right, is that the, the facts are what they are, what happened, happened, you know, at this point, irrespective of what they are, you know, is you're not going to change them. Yeah. And so I think the other part that's really important is, is I, I go out on a social media platform. I go out in public. I've been handed this platform that I definitely didn't fucking ask for. Yeah. Um, and I talk about holding yourself accountable. Well, I think I got some credibility to talk about that because I still hold myself accountable for one of the worst fucking things that I've ever dealt with. Yeah. And I don't change that because a lot of people would allow me to do that. Mm-hmm. And I hold that responsibility and I hold that accountability and I try to be better because of it. And I think that the day that I don't do that anymore, how can I tell other people to hold themselves accountable? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a a good and positive uh, way to move forward and and keep uh, towing that line in in their memory and in their honor. You know, and again, I think you know just hearing you talk about it, and and I know for me that's that's how I <clears throat> look at uh, you know the guys that I was close with that died. I mean, granted, I also wasn't there when they when they did. Yeah. But I can tell you, you know, the, the story of, of Glenn and Ty with Benghazi is that, you know, there's a decision I made to not go with Glenn uh, into that program and, and pass that opportunity on to Ty that's very similar. 
yeah. you know, having introduced the two of them together and, and connecting those dots because I was starting a dog business and I, I couldn't be gone for that amount of time with Glenn. So, hey, you know, you remember Ty, you know, we hung out uh, a couple of years back when I, when I first introduced the two of them and, and, uh, and, and passed that opportunity on and, and Ty took it and, and they're both dead. Now, you know, if I had taken it, would I have been killed? Maybe. Maybe not. Who fucking knows? Who knows? Uh, you know, but but my my ability to to understand that you know we're all grown men. We all make the best decision that we think we're making with what we have at the time that we make it is really all you can go off of. And and I find myself, and and this is what the reason I, I bring it up is because it it offers me a lot of uh, solace and peace, at least in that aspect of my life is thinking about, you know, how, if, if I was in their shoes, how would I want them to, to conduct themselves? And, and, you know, I would want them to look at it as a, as an opportunity, you know, one that I didn't get and, and I would want them to fucking maximize it and take full advantage. And I, you know, and I've tried to do that, you know, um, I used to wear, and, and, and I don't, you know, cause a lot of the hard part of it is, is like, you know, and that's why I don't wear the medal. Like, I don't want this situation to, to be my identity. The, see, the reality, and uh, no different than me being a SEAL as it is. Well, but, but it doesn't, like, it's a part of you, but it's not who you are. To a certain extent. But um, I mean, it's, it's always going to be somewhat of an identifier, you know? But well, what? of course it is. Of course it is. But, you, you know, it can't, be, it, can't, it can't be who you are completely. Like, you know, I, I, I always, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a veteran, but that's not who I am. Like it's a part of me. Yeah. Um, I'm also a father. I'm also a lot of other things. You know, I used to wear the bracelets on both my wrists for a long time, for a long time. And like, it was a way of life and it had became my identity. And, you know, just about a year ago, I, well, less than a year ago, I got rid of them. Yeah. And I did it. I'll never forget. I came out of an airplane skydiving and one of them hit the door as I came out and uh, kind of ripped it off, right? You know, their little black bracelets had two names on either side. And uh, I was in the midair, and I looked down at the other one and took it off and threw it off too. And I'll never forget, like, that, that part of my life, like, it, it, I'm not going to say it took a lot from me, but it takes a lot of happiness from me and joy from me. I'll never forget, I, uh, a couple of days before that, I had walked into, it's just so ironic that that happened. I went in to go, you know, when I go pick my daughters up at school, you know, I, I'm really big on if, if, if they want you to hold them, you pick them up. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know. Within reason. Within reason. So, <clears throat> you know, I, obviously I see them, and they come running. Sailor came running to me, and, and Atlee was with her, and they came running to me just so excited to see me. And, like, I got that joy that I always get from seeing them, and they're, you know, they're one of the only things that brings me joy. And um, when I went to reach up to grab them, my hands were right in front of me, and my eyes go to both my bracelets, and it just ruined the moment. The moment. This was after the... Bef bef so it was before okay. I threw them off. I got you. A couple of days before that. And when I was in the air and I thought about that, I was like, you know, I'm not going to let it take another moment from me. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, on one side of it, I don't want people listening to think that oh, I just walk around with, you know, 
my my head up my ass feeling sorry for myself all the time right like i i don't like you'll never i mean i try to be the most positive upbeat person you'll meet but on the back side of it like i don't forget what happened that day and i don't forget who who's responsible and i don't forget where the accountability lies and just like i hold everybody else accountable who was there that day i also hold my health self to that same accountability and um but on the back side of it I'm not going to let it just as much as I'm not going to let the good, if you would say good part, the medal of honor, identify the rest of my life. I'm not going to let that identify the rest of my life. Um, I know what happened. I failed, but I'm going to, I'm not going to celebrate a win or a failure longer than I would celebrate either one of them and go on about it. Yeah. I think that's, it's good. Uh, that's a good, you know, mental space to be in and, and it, it's encouraging to hear you say that. And I, I also, the, as cheesy as it may sound, the, the ripping of the, of the other bracelet off as, as the closure. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the scene in Top Gun where he throws his dog tags into the water to a certain yeah. extent. I mean, yeah. um, and I think, uh, I think stuff like that, those profound moments are, are crucial, you know, and, and, and part of that process of, of being able to, put your foot in front of the next one and, and take that next step forward. And it's, it's good to, to hear that, that you've done that. Um. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. As, as you've, you know, talked about you know, both skydiving and, and just kind of, I guess, generally speaking, since you've been back, um, skydiving is something that you've kind of gotten into pretty heavy. Is that yeah. is that something that you think is cathartic therapy? It is. It is. Like, it's my therapy. It's my... It's my put me like level me back out, you know. What uh, what is it about it that does that for you? You think? You know, when I go out the door of that airplane, I mean, I still get nervous. I mean, I've got 150 jumps under me in a matter of six months, right? Every time I get up to go out that airplane, I mean, obviously, when I leave that door, I mean, I got to overcome something every time. Like it's still scary as shit to me mm-hmm. to go out that door. Um, and I've always told myself the day that it's not out, the day I quit. But when I'm in free fall, it's the most peaceful thing I've ever done. Like it, I'm no, I don't think about what bills I got to pay, my companies. I don't think about anything. The only thing I'm thinking about is what, what I'm doing at that moment. Is what you need to be. Is what about. I need to be thinking about. Yeah. And it takes my mind off everything else, and it gives me this. I promise, like, if you probably looked at my blood pressure when I got there versus when I left. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Especially it's like, if you've had a bang, right? Yeah. No shit. <laughs> um, it, it puts me back in a, it, it levels me back out to where yeah. I need to be. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's more jumps than I have, uh, by the way. Um, I don't particularly enjoy parachuting. I don't hate it, uh, but it, it doesn't do a whole lot for me i guess it was part of the job and i and i did it i didn't yeah, just, but you did it as a job it's different yeah i, I it, bet it i bet it would I'd be probably different. enjoy it if yeah. i if i did you know catch me fuck me suits and and uh free fall fly uh, skydiving but for me camping camping and hiking is yeah. is that because it 
similarly like it's it's a primal thing it, it makes you feel connected to the earth and without sounding like too much of a fucking granola saying that uh i think for me from a from a deflection or a a redirect standpoint similarly is that you know i'm thinking about whether or not it's going to fucking rain and where my shit is and you know do i have enough wood for the night and you know have i purified enough water to get me through till you know the next time i'm going to be by you know whatever is it it removes all of the fucking white noise of of life that sucks and we were talking about you know when you were telling me that you had rhabdo and your fucking kidneys were failing and i you know we talked about that a little bit um for me that it does that same thing and i, yeah. I encourage anybody you know I, the fuck it doesn't matter what it is you know find something that you enjoy doing that that breaks shit down mentally to that most basic human element of having to focus on what's right the fuck in front of you i mean if if nothing else you're taking a a page out of a dog's book because they are right here right fucking now all the time you yeah. know they don't give a fuck about 10 minutes ago they don't give a fuck about 10 minutes from now how awesome um, would that be it, it's a fucking blessing for sure I mean, that's why they're so goddamn happy all the time yeah. um yeah. you know so i mean as, as funny as that is fucking think about that you know it, it's it's something we could all learn from for sure so you, when you got back from that deployment and you're going through, uh, you know, the, I think it was what, eight weeks at the PTSD treatment facility and stuff, it didn't help a whole lot from the sounds of it, right? You know, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I would say, um, you know, you got to take, like, this book was wrote, written, whatever you want to say, whatever the fuck it is. Whatever's proper, uh, written. Whatever's proper, <laughs> written, wrote. Whatever it was, roten. Uh, it was roten. Uh, That's the that's the Kentucky in you. That's, that's the KY. That's it. Yeah. Which, by the way, what's they couldn't do KT or KC or it had to be fucking KY. It had yeah. to be fuck jelly. Yeah. <laughs> that's the I mean, listen, We got to be good at something. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, Fair not enough. that we're good at it, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, this book was was came out. I, I think 2012, October 2012. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're talking eight years ago, right? Yeah. A lot, lots changed. I mean, I've I've only read this book one time at the final edit. Yeah. Never read it again. Never picked it up. Never looked at it. Nothing. Yeah. I would say back then I felt like it didn't help. I look at it now and I think the educational piece that it gave me, like, did it fix me? No. But there's no, there's no, there's nothing out there that's going to fix anybody, right? Um, I would say that the, what I learned from it, the educational piece, the side of it of me understanding like why I feel this way or what's going on, the way the brain works of, of the knowledge piece of it has, has definitely helped me astronomically. Yeah. You think it's from a, an understanding of a, of a processing standpoint? Yeah. yeah. I mean, of understanding like, well, why do I feel this way? Like, yeah. right? Like, why do I wake up in the middle of the night throwing up? Yeah. Like, well, this is normal. Like, it, 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 it kind of, it kind of brings it down to like, this is just, just part of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, timeline wise, when you went into your truck and grabbed the pistol and put it to your head, when, when was that in relation to the therapy? So it was, it was about a eight months after. So it was September of 2010. So I probably six, six months, seven months later. Can you, uh, tell me where, where your mentality was like, what, what led to that? Yeah. I mean, I just, it wasn't anything other than I just, like, I felt like I seen the effects that like it was putting on my family. Like, man, I was living at my dad's house and just drinking all the fucking time, man. And, you know, I could see the way people looked at me that 
I was not somebody to be around. And it was my fault. Like, honestly, like I was walking around blaming everybody for my fucking problems. You know, uh, I was justifying everything that I did in my life with PTSD, right? Like, well, you're, you're, you're a drunk asshole. Well, yeah, you don't know what I've gone through, right? Like it was my go-to line. Like you haven't done what I've fucking done. Uh, it was a, a crutch for shit. It was behavior. a crutch, right? It was basically me sitting here saying, Hey, look, I'm too big of a bitch right now to take accountability for my actions. So I, let me just, I want to play the victim. Like literally I was making the choice to play the victim and I was hurting everybody around me. And, and I'll never forget. I was driving home that night. Um, it's pretty crazy because the road that I was driving home on now is called the Dakota Meyer highway. And is, it's that road where you actually put your gun to your head. Yeah. So yeah. I pulled off, um, I was coming home and uh, I pulled off. My buddy owns a shop. He owns a shop right on, right off that road. It's on the left-hand side. It's yeah, it's a welding shop. And I knew like, I mean, I, this is how I thought out. I mean, I, but I thought about this on the way home. I'd never thought of it before. It was just that night. I was driving home. I was, dude, I was so drunk. Like I should have never been driving. Like I was driving home and I was like, I'm going to pull into this shop because once I pull into this shop, like I didn't want anybody looking for me. I didn't want to cause anybody inconvenience. I'd already inconvenienced everybody enough. Like I'd already brought, I'd already inconvenienced and fucked everybody's lives up enough. And so I, um, I knew that they'd be there by seven thirty-eight in the morning and they'd find me in the morning. So I pulled off in there and put the car in park and I just, I grabbed my Glock. Um, it's a Glock 40, 40 cal, uh, compact. I stuck to my head and squeezed trigger and nothing went off. And I'd shot the gun the day before. And you know who unloaded it, right? Or you think, you know, I mean, I think I know. You, do you not want to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know a hundred percent. You know, I mean, to me, like my my natural assumption would be your dad. It was either it was either if it was him or somebody, one other person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I don't think it was my dad. Um, I think somebody else. And what uh, what is your hesitation for for saying? I just don't know. You know what I mean? And I just. I is, mean, is there an element of you not wanting to know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why you haven't asked who you think it is and don't want to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I know. I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty damn sure because, uh, that person showed up later on that night. Like, I'm pretty sure I know, you know what I mean? I just, I just, I'm just hesitant about it just because, you know, I don't know that I really want to know. I don't really know that I want to come to that. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, obviously I'm grateful for it now, but I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I think it's just like, it's almost embarrassing to know that somebody else could see how fucked up I was. I mean, you could look at it from the perspective of uh, you'd be grateful that they were paying that close attention. Now that I have my daughters, I'm 100% grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Just as I am, like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you take when Katie Cop sent me, made the decision to send me home from Afghanistan. Well, that's another fucking something I didn't finish. Well, somebody else made another decision. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of these things. It's like, well, I mean, how many many things can I really go through life and fuck up, right? 
I mean, we all fuck a lot of things up all the time. Of course. You know? Of course. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, element to, to the human mind. I think, uh, sometimes not wanting to know certain things that are of that, that magnitude, because obviously it's not something that you've been secretive about in terms of the act of, you know, wanting to, to actually go through with that, you know, but an element of kind of continuing to want to keep some ambiguity as it relates to, I don't know why. I mean, I think it's weird. Like I agree. Like now that you brought this up, like, I mean, because like at this point, everybody, a lot of, I mean, most people who pay any attention to you know that, that you were in yeah, that I mean, spot. Oh yeah. I mean, it's been used against me in my divorce. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah I mean, it's been, it's been used on every aspect to try to, you know, yeah, that's fucking, to fuck me over. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know why I've never told anybody, like I've never like, and honestly, I never, I never told anybody about what happened until it came out in the book. Yeah. The first person I ever told this story to was Bing West. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'm open about it. I don't care. Like, but I, but I honestly felt like it was so important for me to tell because I didn't think it was fair for me to tell people just one side of it. Like I had to let them know my vulnerabilities and my weak moments. Like I felt like if I was going to write a book about me and my life, it had to be the real book. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, it can't be the brochure. It can't be, like, me pick the stories to show... Like, it can't be the Instagram book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the recruiting brochure, the 15% that's fucking... The filter. The fil- yeah. the filtered. You know, like, I mean, Instagram, we can make anything look great, right? Yeah. Only show the pictures that we like. Only time we look good whenever we've got makeup on or whenever we look the best in the right yeah. lighting and all that. We can choose and do that, right? Yeah. And I couldn't. I just felt like it was so important to me to put that in the book that because I, I wanted people to know that, like, you know, sometimes life does suck. Yeah. Sometimes even the guys who have received the highest medals get to the lowest points too. Yeah. Well, I think it, it's important that uh, you are, are, for lack of better terms, exposed at face value. Yeah. You know? And I am to every aspect. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, if it's something where you hadn't really thought about why it's not something you'd want to mention, I mean, what, where is your mind at as it relates to now? Now, now, if I'm asking you, like, why do you, why do you think that you don't want uh, that person to know uh, that you think it was them? I mean, I, I, I think that they know. I mean, I think that I, that I they I'm, know that, you know, oh, I'm sure they do. It's interesting because the person's in the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, now that I put it all together, it's kind. It's just, and I just, I guess, like I just, I just think that like she obviously saved my life. I think she knows it. She does know it a hundred percent. And I, I mean, I think that it's just like you know, if that's one thing I get to hold on to in my appreciation, then I should just hold on to it. You know. Yeah, I can. I. I uh can and will respect that. And but I think it. that's I think that's ironic, you know, now that I look at it. Like I've never thought of it that deep, right? That's what Mike Drop's all about, right? Yeah. I mean she I mean she actually called me about it after she read the book. Do you want to tell her thank you on air here or what? Yeah, I mean she she knows it. Like yeah, I I 
I'd say it took me a long time to get there, but like after every, you know, after after definitely having my, you know, meeting Sailor, a hundred percent, like gosh, like you know, I've even had to come. Last year, I called Captain Katie Cop for the first time, and I thanked her for sending me home. Yeah, uh, was she pretty receptive to that? She said, I thought you hated me. She's like, uh, I never thought I'd ever hear from you again. I was sitting in the H-E-B parking lot, and I just said, you know, Katie, like, gosh, I hated you. I did. I I probably still hate you for it, right? But, you know, now every time I look in my daughter's eyes and every time I get to hold Atlee or I get to hold Sailor, like, fuck, I really appreciate you doing and fighting me so hard to be able to give me that. Yeah, that's uh, it's neat and encouraging uh, to hear. You know, you talk about it, and you can you can feel and see the emotion behind it. Uh, you know that it's come full circle that way. That's that's uh, encouraging. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, crazy. So speaking of the daughters, so you you end up meeting Bristol Palin um, and getting married. Uh, it's kind of a circus. You want to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I yeah, mean, not really. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, look, I got, I got, I got nothing to say about, you know, bad about Bristol. I mean, she looked, she gave me two beautiful daughters. I mean, the greatest things in my life. She taught me a lot. You know, we just weren't good together. I mean, I have the utmost respect for her. I, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's been great to co-parent with. Um, you know, look, I, I've got my own demons. I mean, I'm hard to deal with myself. So, I haven't found anybody. I will tell you this: like I've not found anybody that ever wanted to stay in my life forever. Yeah, I feel like that's a personal shot. So there's me. only one. There's only one uh, common denominator with all the people that I'm here for you. Yeah, well, you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you took it like that. Well, outside of you, outside of you. Uh, but uh, you know, I mean, look, I. Yeah, you know, I, I met her. You know, we 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 fell in love, and we. Gosh, you know, I mean, you know, I'll tell you this, like her, her world's hard too. Mm-hmm. Um, you what? know, her, her world's hard too. And, and, and she didn't choose her world either. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, she didn't pick her mom and the family. You know, she didn't pick, she didn't pick the, you know, number one, the environment she grew up in. Uh, number two, the, you know, the spotlight. She didn't, she didn't choose it either. And she's, yeah. she's kind of just like, I think me and her relate a lot because we've just tried to do the best with what we've had to be handed, you know? Yeah, yeah. How did the the whole fucking teen mom thing come up? And and I guess further, I mean, that's obviously a more negative than positive impact, but did you have any say in that? Or was it like, I'm doing this and fucking deal with it? Or You know, we... And I mean, I don't know shit about the show other than what I can ascertain from the name and, you know, a couple of clips here and there. That I've yeah, seen I mean, we kind of just... We kind of, it was kind of just at that moment, the part, the phase we were going through, the divorce and stuff, we kind of just, just did it to, did I want to do it? No, I didn't want to do it. But, you know, so, sometimes you can, you know, sometimes you can get deals done, you know. So we got divorced and we did the team mom show as an agreement. And, you know, we, look, we got past that and we're off the show now. So that's really good. I mean, yeah. you know, that was, Gosh, it was not good for either one of us. Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to mention it, it's fine. I'm curious, like, what does something like that fucking pay? I'm going to ask it. I know everybody's asking. I know uh, it's way less than... $25,000 an episode. Jesus Christ, that much. Yeah. But, I, I mean, like, I never did it for the money. I mean... Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, well, that's I mean, that certainly fucking helps stomach the pain in the ass, right? Yeah. I mean, but you know, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the problems that it causes between, you know, your home life is like, yeah. fuck, I mean, you, it ain't worth that. Yeah. You've gotten some, uh, I mean, a fair bit of fucking anti fans from it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the way they portrayed me of, of just to be some crazy, just, I mean, you know, uh, MTV took real, like they, they, they took, they, they definitely made me out to be just some monster, you know? And, yeah. um, is, is, uh, would you say the creative editing process was in full effect? Like, Oh, Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. They're editors. I mean, I, I hope to meet their editors one day too. Um, <laughs> With Blazerian? Yeah, yeah. And, and Major Granger. Let's yeah. put all three of yeah. them in the same category. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, but they, you know, that's what they do. They want to get, I mean, reality TV is not real. Yeah, it's scripted. Uh, it's fucking, scripted. Yeah. I mean, it's not really scripted, but like the editing, like, I promise you can, I can, yeah. I, I can take you living your best life and make it look bad with the right editing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's manufactured as fuck. There's yes. no, no two ways about it. Um, any fallout or kind of, or follow through or, or after, after the show, has there been anything because of that um, that's in in the works or or since then? No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, you know, with the a lot of the publicity, you know, the frustrating part to me is is, you know, they see like now people see this Teen Mom, and you go Google, and that's what comes up first, and it's like. You know, I've done a lot more than that. Like, yeah. I got, I've made some mistakes, but I've done a lot more than that, yeah. you know? And, uh, like, for somebody who's never heard your name and they Google it, like, the, the first snapshot's going to be of that. Yeah, they put me in the same category as everybody else on Team Mom, right? Like, yeah. they put me in the same category as everybody else I see on, on, on MTV. It's just kind of like, I, I'm not one of them. And I made it clear up front, like, you know, I'm not, I promise I'm not, I'm not one of you all. Yeah. I mean, from a technicality standpoint, she wasn't a teen, though, right? She was when she was when she was when she had trip. When you when she first got pregnant, yeah. Oh, with trip, but not with. Well, with none of them on there are teens anymore, right? Yeah. Like that's what Teen Mom doesn't make any sense. It's a it's a franchise, <clears throat> and it's a. I guess to me, like logically, it's like wouldn't you have to be a fucking teen? Yeah. <laughs> to be on Teen Mom. Yeah, I mean, there's not much logic to Teen Mom. Yeah, across the board. Um, being in the public eye, you know, again, it's not something you asked for, but the reality of it is, is, is that you are, you know, there's not a lot of Medal of Honor recipients that are alive. Um, two things. I'm curious, you know, how, how does that continue to, how, how did it impact you? How does it, or how does it continue to impact you? But also, do you find a, a solace in the other Medal of Honor winners? Do you guys, I know that there's, there's kind of a, an organization that you guys are a part of, but like, do you lean on each other at all? Uh, is there kind of a brotherhood? I, no, no. I mean, I guess they have one, but I'm, I'm out of it. <laughs> you got fucking voted off the island, voted <laughs> off the MOH island. You know, when I needed them the most, you know, a lot, a lot of times, like nobody wants to talk about this, but when I needed them the most, you know, I mean, my medal of honor is probably one of the most controversial medal of honors that's out there. Right. When I needed them the most, uh, Marine Corps reached out to them and said, Hey, would you just write a statement to support Dakota? Uh, that said, you support the state, you, you support the process. And the Medal of Honor Society said, no, we will not do anything to back Dakota. Do you know why they did that? Because they're, I mean, I, I don't know, but guess what? Like, I don't want anything to do with them. I, I don't, like, I like some of the, obviously the recipients, right? Like, I, I'm friends with them, but like, as far as an organization, 
I just don't agree with the, the direction that they're going. And I don't agree with, with, you know, I feel like that as a Medal of Honor recipient, you should be like kind of like the Congress of veterans, mm-hmm. not going out and doing a, you know, a Medal of Honor convention to be told how great you are in every city. Do so. You said you're you're friends with several of them, uh, but yet there's not really a brotherhood. Can you quantify that? I mean, why would I have a brotherhood? I mean, I didn't serve with any of them. Agreed, but you know what I mean. Like I didn't like. Well, I, I mean, so bear with me for a second. Is that you know, there's a lot of seals that I never served with. Yeah. But we've all been through buds, which is you know a very specific and tough process that bonds everybody that's been through it. I can only imagine, um, you know, how few of you there are, dead or alive. Around 80. You know, there's not very fucking many. No. Like, I mean, th- think of other groups in on the planet where there's only 80 of them mm-hmm. in the entire fucking world, or I guess in this case, in this country still. Yeah. That's a fucking small group of people. Of course. Uh, you know, so to me, inherently, there's an element of, you know, brotherhood bonding you know at least to a certain extent do you feel some of that or not really no none just you're just friends with some of the guys because you've met them through yeah yeah i'm friends with some of the guys because i've met them but like as far as the organization like i i guess maybe more from an informal brotherhood standpoint like just you have kind of a mutual respect for guys because oh i have you know anybody who has medal of honor i mean anybody who served i don't have any more respect for those guys as i do anybody else who's wore the nation's cloth yeah you you know what i mean like it doesn't like i'm part of the only club i need to be part of and that's the united states marine corps right like that's any other club like being a veteran right like i don't I'm not better than anybody because I have this blue ribbon around my neck. Like the only difference in me and anybody else that served our country was the opportunity was put in front of them. You know, I'm no better than you. I mean, I, I don't deserve to be treated any better than you. Like, like we both did what the country asked of us. I'm no better than anybody who didn't see combat that chose to go do it. Like I, I just, I don't, I mean, do you go out and I mean, I don't know. I mean, what's your highest medal you have? It's a uh, com with a V. So do you go out and wear that around? Every I, I shower with it. Well, gotcha. <laughs> right? But you get my point? Like, no, I don't, I, yeah, I don't I like, I don't, do you go out and wear your trident? Like, you know. Every chance I get. You know I, what I'm saying? It's no, the same thing. Mean. It's like, it's like, I just can't, I can't drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, for me, like, are there times where, you know, if I'm in a suit in some occasions, not, not every time I'm in a suit, but depending on what the event is or whatever, yeah, I, I may have a, a lapel trident on uh, on it. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. But no, I mean, I think I think to that, me, it's it's something I'm you know I'm proud to have done. Uh, do I try to shove it up people's asses? Do I you know have a business card with it on it and say, hey, I'm Mike. I was a seal. No. Okay, that's a you know. But there you go. But right? uh, but yeah, I guess you know again, just not having you know received a, a medal of honor I, you know for me it's it's more out of curiosity just if there's yeah, I mean, kind of a people do different things with it right look I, I i have the utmost respect for any of them who have the medal because gosh i know what it's like just just not, like not even for what they've done right but like just just at what it's like to live with the damn thing yeah um, uh, I, I can see a, a double-edged sword to it, absolutely, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I've gone to events, and, like, this will show you the mentality. Um, I mean, I've had a recipient come up to me. We go to an event. There's three of us, and he comes up to me, and, and, and 
tells me that, uh, well, where's your medal at? What's at home with my uniform? Well, you need to wear your medal. First off, like, you. you don't tell, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't tell me what the fuck to do. <clears throat> yeah. And it's still this mentality of, you know, I'm a general, so I, I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah. You can call me, you know, general so-and-so. I, I'm not, no, I'll, I'll call you by your first name. Like yeah. I'm not in the military anymore. I got out, so I didn't have to call people that, right? Well, so, I, and I get that that kind of comes off negative sometimes, but, you know, uh, I earned the same medal they did. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just, you know, and I guess probably it started off wrong whenever, whenever they wouldn't turn around and support me. Yeah. Like that, that started the bad. That taste. started the bad. And, and I just like, you know, look, I, I, lo I love them. Like I, a lot of the guys in there, like, I think they're great guys. Yeah. Um, but I just can't get into the, let me put the metal on and walk around with it. Yeah. I, I can't, I just can't, I can't, I can't buy into it. And I've had them tell me you need to wear the metal. And so my best way of doing it is like, Hey, look, you guys do your thing. I'll do mine. I'm going to go out here and try to change the world. And I'm going to go try to change the world for veterans and tell veterans how great they are, like um, whether they got a medal or not. Yeah. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. <laughs> Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No, I think that's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, I, I can see where... You know, in in some instances where it could potentially cause cause issues the other way. Um, so moving forward, I guess when when and why did you decide to pull chalks out of Kentucky and move to this great state of Texas? Oh well, I moved to Alaska to be with my daughter. Uh, you know, I got married to Bristol. We moved up. I moved up there with her. What was that like living there? It's Alaska's a, a wonderful place to visit. Uh, <laughs> well, just like a good neighbor comment, right? Yeah, she's, I mean, it's a wonderful place. A to, no, I mean, if you go up there between April and October, it's amazing. Yeah. But damn. <laughs> uh, you know, and then me and Bristol just decided to move to Austin to try, you know, give it a shot. And Is that her idea? I think, I think we both made it, yeah. yeah. Why Austin? I mean, that's like the, the left coast of fucking Texas. Is that why? No, I don't know. I don't know why we chose Austin. I think, I don't know. 
mean, Austin is a cool place. It definitely, Texas-wise, has a very different vibe than the rest of the state. Well, I don't though. live in, I don't, I don't claim I live, like, I, like I, I fly out of Austin. Yeah. Uh, I live on the west side, so, like, I, like I don't, I don't, I, I've maybe been downtown twice. Have you been to uh, La Barbecue or Franklin's? Nope. I think we ought to end this interview right now. Yeah. No, I <laughs> you don't eat the fucking barbecue in Austin. Um, I don't know much about it. Holy fucking Christ! I'm gonna have to have you come over again. You can come. You can come to my house. We'll uh, smoke some ribs for you today, for Christ's sake. I'm in. Um. So, so once you're down there, and and obviously, so then you got divorced while being down there. Mm-hmm. What was that like uh, in terms of hitting the reset button and <sighs> and trying to become. Or, or facilitate uh, being an entrepreneur during that? Like, uh, tell me about that. I mean, I would say going through the divorce is probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through. It's another failure, right? I mean, you don't go through my life and it's just made up of failures. And uh, for some reason, my failures always get the most publicity. I think, that, uh, I mean... To me, everything's a learning opportunity. I mean, I, I've been through one, and it is difficult. It continues to be. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it sucks. I mean, it sucks to, you know, I mean, it sucks to fail. It sucks to, you know, not be with my kids twenty four seven. I mean, it, I mean, it like it. There's nothing. There is nothing. You think parenting is hard? Co-parenting's hard too. I'm, I'm right there like, with you, right? Brother. Like it's not <laughs> a. I mean, it's fucking hard, and um, it's it's worse than hard sometimes. Yeah, and so you know, it's it, it was it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. Um, but you know, I I definitely think it was the right thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. Moving into the entrepreneur phase, uh, what uh, what keeps your interest, sparks your your drive, I guess, to to do what you do now, and and can you tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I've got Flipside Canvas. We're coming out with daily designs. And honestly, I just, what drives me is is just the pure, I love seeing people get excited about my product. You know, I... I where, where did that idea come from? So uh, the Canvas side of it started with Canvas, right? Uh, we started with Canvas and printing Canvas. I just looked at like other companies like Iconic and them and I'm like, like I ordered their stuff and I said, I can do this way better. Mm-hmm. And uh, our stuff is 100% American made. It's it's way better quality than any other canvas company that's out there, 110%. And if you don't, if, 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 if you, you know, disagree, then I'll take my, I'll take my stuff back and refund yeah. you. Right. But now we've got into uh, HD metal. So it's Chroma Lux metal. Oh, nice. It's really slick looking. And then we're also doing a uh, paper, uh, uh, frame paper. But, you know, for me, I just, you know, I just want to make people's day better. Like if they're having a bad day, I want them to be excited about our product, whether it's t-shirts with on the dash or it's flip side canvas or whatever it is. I just want them, like, if I can do something to make somebody's day better, then, then that's what drives me to do it. Yeah. I, I love the, the spirit and the spirit of it and the mentality towards it is, uh, are the canvases, are they, I mean, it seems like from what I've seen of them, they're all predominantly like powerful images and stuff. Yeah. Can people send you pictures to have? Done? Yeah, yeah. You can send me pictures. I mean, we, you know, we'll, we'll work on it. I mean, there's a design fee to that because, yeah. like, I have to, you know, obviously make it right to our, digitize, to our, to digitize it, it, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're just trying to do the the love America, patriotism, the hardworking, badass art. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, you know, I call it badass art for badasses, right? Yeah. You don't have to be a male, female. It's just whatever the fuck you want to be, right? Yeah. And um, 
You know, that's that's we have to be one or the other. Well, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe Maybe not. not. That's a whole other fucking podcast. Yeah. Uh, Is there a most popular print to date? Um, I would say Silent Professionals is definitely one of the most popular prints, right? Um, I I, uh, am curious about the metal stuff. Yeah. Is there a a point at which it's too detailed for it to turn out? The metal shows more detail than anything. Get the fuck out. Yeah, like you want, like if you, like that's why we started doing metal. I mean. No, I'm serious. Let's wrap it up. Get the fuck out. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the images on metal are just the detail in it. Like we use a high, it's like probably like the Rolls Royce of metal. Mm-hmm. Everything we do, that's why our, our prices are a little bit higher, but because the qualities are like, I refuse to have something look like shit in somebody's house so or it, business. So is it like a laser engraved thing? Or? No. So basically what we do is you, you print it off on this uh, material and then it's put back on it and it's basically uh, forged into uh, it's heated and pressed into so it's the like metal. stamped into it? Yeah, kind of like that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, and then I, you, I'm going to need to check that shit out. I mean, like, so I'll send you some. Could you do that, the the flag with the trident in it? Oh, absolutely. Like, send know. me that image. I will. Yeah, send me that image. And I can, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's fucking bad. It, it's sick. It's, it, it's, oh, it looks so good. Or even the, uh, like, the, the shield would be fucking cool out of metal. Yeah, either one. I, I, yeah, send both of them and All I'll right. knock it out. Fuck, man, that's awesome. I appreciate it. Are you hang it up or are you going to put it out in the dog kennel? I'll probably throw it in the attic. Yeah. Throw, it, throw an old piss-covered blanket yeah. over it. I know how you are. I know how you are. Maybe one of the whelping blankets will cover it with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, for absolutely, if I can put it you up. You put it on the ceiling? Well, no, the mirror's for the ceiling. That's yeah, for when you, you come over. Yeah, but, that's true. Yeah. Oh. That way I can look back at you. That's right. Wait a minute. Yeah, Wait, no, that's on. right. Yeah, no, that is right. So the uh, if if we could, uh, as entertaining as this is, uh, the own the dash stuff. Tell me about that because uh, I, I love the just the the sentiment behind you know that wording of of mechanism. Can you talk about it? Yeah, you know, own the dash. You know, it started with like just t-shirts. I mean, I had this Linda Ellis wrote a poem called the dash, and you know, she talks about you know the one thing that we all know about is gosh, death, right? Um, as 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 m- I guess the word morbid is that sounds right. um, But we're all dying and our last living legacy is a tombstone. And on that tombstone, you've got the day you were born and the day you died, which are only the only two days that aren't 24 hours in your life. The only two days you really have no control of. But what matters is that dash in between, you know, you don't get to decide how long it is. You don't get to decide anything else, but what you get to decide is what it looks like. And uh, you get to make that choice every single day how people are going to remember you. And they're not going to ever remember you. I always think about, you know, what are people going to say when I die? You know, because we're always trying to measure what's success, mm-hmm. right? Like there's always somebody better than you. <laughs> You're always better than somebody. Um, what really is success? And I think, you know, success for me is is what are people going to say about me when I die and how are they going to remember me? Yeah. And I just want to... I want my actions every day to help them write whatever they're going to write on that piece of paper when they walk up there and read that, yeah. that day that I die. And that's what Own the Dash is about, is like owning your dash, like whatever you want to be, like whether you want to be Navy SEAL or you want to be, you know, a janitor at a school or whatever, like nobody's more significant or matters more than the other. Nobody's more important than the other. We're all just cogs in the wheel trying to make this thing of life better, right? And... And if we all went around and and did something nice for ev- someone, ev- one person every single day, 
how much better would that day make it? Like how much yeah. better would life be? How much better would the world be? And that's what <clears throat> On the Dash is about. It's about lifting each other up. It's about being there for each other. It's about telling, it's about telling your story in a way that, you know, your story and your struggles in a way that's not being the victim, but then in a way to show others that they can get through it too, because we're all going through something. Yeah. We're all going through something. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, I, I love all, all elements of it. I, I know the, you know, for me, what does success look, look like? And, you know, off the top of my head, my thoughts are, you know, ha- having the, the biggest and most positive impact on the rest of the world as you can. You know, yeah. I don't give a fuck what you do. There's going to be people that hate you, that think you're doing it all wrong, that are going to criticize you. God knows I have, have plenty of them, you know, but you just, again, you, you make the best decision at the time with what you have and, uh, and hope that it's, you know, making the most impact. But if that drives your decision, uh, each decision as you make it, I think uh, it's hard to go wrong. And it reminds me of, I don't remember who the fuck said it. It's not that it's a super old quote. I, I read it here fairly recently, but, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It's not exact, but the gist of it is, you're the youngest you'll ever be today. A hundred percent. You know, like you're not, you're not, you know, you can say you're not getting any younger, but I think when you, when you phrase it that way, like for the rest of your life, you're the youngest you'll ever be right fucking now. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say like, you know, when you're born, they should hand you a sign that says you're dying. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. The, uh, it'd be, it'd be nice if you could rationalize that before you're 30 fucking years old, you know, cause most people don't myself included. I mean, what do they say? The, the youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. It goddamn sure is. Um, that's a fact, isn't it? Holy yeah. shit. The youth is wasted on the young. Fucking A it is. Gosh. Um, well, so yeah, there's a, there's a million fucking quotes, but, um, you know, surrounding yourself with warriors, doing what you're up to now. Talk about um, kind of what what's in store for you with those two projects and anything else you have going on. And what uh, what what would you say you do here? Yeah, you know, I'm getting ready to you know I'm getting ready to take on the dash to another level. Right, I'm going to do a subscription type model. Oh, nice. Um, you know, we got the owning it podcast, the YouTube going. You know, just more about you know being vulnerable. I mean, I gosh. You know, I, I'm a guy that, you know, I, I think there's always this, there's there's a level of decisions that you made and there's always reckoning to it, right? Like no matter what you do, whether it's whether it's fighting a war or whether it's make bad decisions or whether it's being young, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, there's always a day of reckoning of where those, the, your actions are going to come to, to where you're going to have to face and really think about, well, how could I have done this different, right? Yeah. And I think that's... The longer that is, I mean, there, everything always has that. And the longer that is, the more time you waste. And I think that's why some people go through their entire life not being able to deal with what they've gone through, right? And and I think that the good thing is I, I can say that I think this year I'm probably in the best place I've ever been. Like, I think that I've had that reckoning. I think that it's finally came to make – I think I've, I've made sense of what I've gone through. I think I've made sense of why. I think I've made sense of what can I do with – a lot of negative shit over my life. What can I do with it and how can I make it mean something, right? And, um, you know, so we're getting ready to do that with the Only Dash. We're going to start, you know, I've been putting out content, kind of like testing the content and it's been going really good. And, you know, with, obviously with Flipside Canvas, you know, we're just going to keep putting out designs and keep building it bigger and bigger and hopefully have, you know, an empire to where I, I want to have one piece of her art in in every household in America someday. 
That's a, a hell of a good goal, and I uh, fuck. I I hope that you you get yourself there, and I'm happy to to spread the word. But let me say help. this: in every household in America that loves America. Yeah, yeah. Well, that does cut a few out. It does. Yeah, I wanted to get rid of. <laughs> I wanted to get rid of some of them. Yeah. No shit. Where where do you see yourself five years from now? Like what uh, what is the the end goal for you? Man. I just want to be raising my daughters, you know, like that's, that's kind of like the level of perspective that I've kind of had to put things in. I mean, like you, I mean, I think, I think I know a little bit about getting some negative attention, right? Mm -hmm. Um, people having their own fucking opinions and, you know, I, I just go home and I just, is, I, I ask myself, will this change the way my daughters feel about me? Um, and if it doesn't, then I really don't give a fuck what you say about me or what you think. Right. And, um, you know, for me, I just, I, I, number one, I want to, I want to, I, I want my daughters to be healthy. I want to be raising them to be um, incredible citizens. I want to, you know, I want to be giving them a, a life that, that, that's honorable. Um, I want to be a better dad. I'm not saying I'm a bad dad now, but I want to get better at it, right? Like I want to be better every day and I want to change the world. Like, I don't know if I'm going to do it in five years. Am I doing 10 years? I, I don't know, but I, I hope to, you know, I hope to just, I just want to change change the world and make, I just want to make the world a better place. I just want to make it better than what I left it or let, leave it better than I found it. Yeah. I, uh, I think they're all great sentiments. Um, and, and I agree with them. Um, I mean, I just can't get into like, well, I want my, you know, when I hear people like, Oh, I want a $50 million business. Well, it's like, well, obviously you're worried about yourself, right? Like, you know, I, I can't really get into behind those people who, um, well, I, you know, I want to, you know, I just, I just want to make a difference and whatever I got to do to do that, then, then that's where I'll be. Yeah. I mean, everybody's, uh, idea of success is different. No doubt about it. Do you uh, have any plans to write any other books? Might be working on it now. Is that right? Is yeah. this a mic drop exclusive? What's happening? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a yes. Uh, <laughs> Where that's good shit, man. Where uh, where can everybody find you? Uh, social media, yeah. website wise, etc. You know, we got YouTube, we got Facebook. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, you know, one of the best places I would say go is uh, obviously check out flipsidecanvas.com. Uh, go to ownthedash.us. But you know, we've got a uh, a closed Facebook group. You got to answer two questions to get in, but uh, it's really a powerful group, inspiring. I mean, people lifting people up. It's a own the dash. Uh, it's a closed group. You can find it on Facebook. Um, but I'm telling you, if you want to get in there and like, if you want to, if you want to have a place where you can go to if you're having a bad day to to, to make your day better, that's the place. What are the two questions you have to answer? Uh, we ask, how are you owning your dash, right? Like, how are you living your life? And then what do you want to get from the group? I think it's got to, you know, you got to have those, you got to set the expectations, right? Yeah. Like, if you're going in there to, you know, if you're looking for drugs, it ain't the spot, right? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Tranny porn. <laughs> uh, what the? So I guess there's some in there if it's that funny. <laughs> Uh, maybe I shouldn't answer you two questions. Um, <laughs> the, are you the one reviewing the answers? I am. No shit. Yeah. One at a time. I review huh? every one of them. Fucking hey, Well, maybe I, I will pop on there and yeah. fuck with you a little bit. <laughs> you should pop in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need I need some more clarity on this answer. <laughs> I need some amplifying. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't know if I even have a job after today. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's my goal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, crazy. Can I be your camera guy if yeah. I do? Fuck yeah. All right. Uh, I mean, it's the tripod. You gotta, you gotta beat out the tripod. Yeah, but, well, I mean, um, I am a marine. That's true. <laughs> Hold this. 
for five hours. Um, well, goddamn, man, we've been sitting here a while. I uh, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I know it's a it's a tough one, and I also know it's one you've you've shared a lot. Um, hopefully, uh, for those of you listening, uh, you've garnered the same level of respect and obtained the same level of appreciation for what our guys go through. And, and hearing a story of this magnitude is is very good at uh, hitting the, the reset button as it relates to perspective. I know I need a, a constant reminder of it, and today has been a, a very good one for me, and I, I hope the listener shares that same thing. I, I cannot thank you enough for making the trip up here. And, oh, thank and you, man. Thank you for having me. Time. Thank you for blessing me with your presence. Well, uh, you know, I'd say it's the least I can do, but let's be honest, fucking nothing's the least I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, before we wrap up here, I want to, uh, again, give a shout-out to Origin uh, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, those guys kick ass. Uh, go to Origin Labs to check out their uh, their products as well as all the Jocko stuff. If you have a dog, if you know somebody with a dog, if you've petted a dog, or if you even know what the fuck a dog is, go to teamdog.pet and sign up. All right? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Just go fucking do it. Stop sending me the how do I get my dog to X questions in the fucking DMs and just go sign up for it. That's all I'm going to say. There's products. There's a fuck ton of products available, all the stuff. I'm not going to belabor it. Go on there, sign up, buy the shit that you need, put the time in, get off your ass, train your dog, and just fucking do it. All right. Last but certainly not least, uh, is there anything you want to throw in before we uh, wrap up? Uh, yeah. How do, I, how do I get my dog oh to... Oh, my God. <laughs> I, uh, I can appreciate that. You know what? We'll, uh, I'll tell you what. We'll get you in the bite suit, and we'll talk about it once he's on you. How's that sound? <laughs> oh, Christ. Uh, last but not least, you, the listener. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate all the time you guys put in uh, of listen, listening to assholes like Dakota and I flap our gums to give us the platform to talk to you and bring it to you week after week, month after month. Uh, if not for you guys, we would not exist in this capacity. So thank you. And again, until next time, this is Mike Drop. Before Sarah discovered chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.